morning, humble. Morning, Alex. Uh, doing well. Starting my day with. I used to. I used to put on the local radio just to start my day off uh, on my way to work. Now, uh, now I just listen to Bitcoin Breakfast Club. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Also, I feel inc incredibly embarrassed because I called you Jamie all this time. So my apologies. It's all good. It's all good. It literally translates to to that in English, so it's all good. I figured, but still, just proves how uncultured I am. All right. Well, let's see. So Alex, was was Stefan joining us this morning? No, he's not. I saw you just changed the, the title. He is, but he's coming on the second hour, so I don't want people thinking he's oh. here right now, so I, I switched it up. Yeah, that makes sense. Good. Yeah. Some crazy stuff going on in Australia. I already warned him ahead of time. I'm going to ask you some questions about what's happening down there. Is that okay? He's like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Thank God he's out. Yeah, I know, right? Can you imagine? Jesus, I can't even imagine what it must be like down there. It's crazy. Good morning, Log Scale. How are you? Morning. I'm great. How are you? Good. I am good. I am uh, working on uh, a tweet storm that I promised a couple of days ago um, with more of the details about the collaboration of between the U.S. government and two top universities um, connected oh, yeah. to Bitcoin, um, some of which I you know, tweeted about previously, but some of which I've never disclosed publicly. So I'm putting that together. Which universities? MIT and, you heard it here first, Princeton. Guys, there's also a developing story coming out of El Salvador that uh, there's... Um, been a, a little bit of um, a coup, coup d'etat in the making from uh, Nayib Bukele's own uh, own party, and uh, supposedly the American embassy has been implicated in that. But the American embassy um, came out with um, several tweets uh, outright denying, uh, categorically denying any involvement. And but yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. So. This is not readily available in uh, in English uh, speaking news, so um, I'll just um, I'll I'll try to consume it better and uh, integrate it before I I you know I don't like to trade in the currency of rumors, but uh, but I think that uh, this is the story coming out of the um, uh, El Salvador main news outlets right now. You know what? I am I am not surprised one bit when Naeem Bukele came out and did what he did I thought to myself this is one courageous dude because when you mess with the United States dollar like 
that's a good way to take a dirt nap. I just think back to like when Saddam Hussein said, yeah, we're going to start taking euros for oil. What happened to him immediately thereafter? This is like the pattern. Like you mess with the U.S. dollar, you mess with the um, you mess with that power structure, man, and it, it puts a gigantic target on your back. So I don't think anybody is surprised that that that's happening. And and you say that it's it's currently in the rumor stage, which I believe, but it, there's probably something to that. I would not be surprised. Yeah, um, I'll I'll try to share the tweets from the uh, U.S. Embassy for you guys. Just it's they're in Spanish, but if you hit the translate button, you can you can kind of see what they're talking about. Sorry, they're trying to do a coup on him. What's up? Yeah, that's that's I wouldn't say a coup, but like definitely a revolt uh, within his own party, which would see the party. Um, you know, and in, in some of the opposition, hopefully split it in half. And then that way, you know, um, it wouldn't be so easy for them to get a lot of the the things that they're sort of promoting, which is like 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 99.9% do not have to do with Bitcoin at all. <laughs> it's like things like let's build this bridge and these roads and, you know, like just common governance. Right. But uh, but yeah, they're like he won't up, do those things. Or he no, wants he will. To do those he will. He will. Like, like what, what, what's happening is that he showed up every other government before because they would talk about things, do like feasibility studies. They would sink all. The money and all this, like, wow. he showed them up. Huh. That's not wrong. Didn't he basically, like, quote unquote, coup his way in? in? Like, it's pretty much. And this is this is where things go sideways. Like, he um he got elected fair and square. Like, the EU and the US were uh, witnessing the the elections, and so. Did his party for the uh, assembly uh so like it, it, it's kind of like the u.s where you have the presidency but you also have a congress and so both him and his party won fair and square but what is that because he had such huge majorities he can actually like he doesn't have to go and send things to committee because the committee these are it's gonna be like all of so like i mean and uh I mean, they don't do committee, but um, to get further, but because of this, then there's this optical illusion that things aren't democratic, uh, that things aren't being questioned, and so, so then, and and of course, I have to agree with some people like that. You probably need a stronger opposition in there to to put some oversight, but the opposition has no credibility, so then they didn't get elected, so then they can't be useful, and so. Um, so a lot of the 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 uh, Supreme Court replacement for the judges and a lot of the dismissal of the judges, it's all legit. <laughs> that's yeah. the, that's the it's it's just that you know people don't like it and 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 it's like hey you know this is why 
you have to have ethical opposition because it it doesn't serve people well when you in and then yeah it has it looks like it's a dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, an efficient government is a threat to government or you know people that actually want to have a say. But it's kind of like you know how Taproot was so I don't want to say so easily able to get through, but no one could really disagree with it. You know, like there's a consensus and his majority and consensus is just so strong. Like there's nothing to really dispute about. Thanks for the updates, Jaime. Um, And we'll look forward to getting some more updates from you here in the future. We're going to get rolling with uh, today's main topic and main guests. We're going to be rotating some of the speakers, et cetera. Um, just a real quick, some some housekeeping stuff. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, Bitcoin Breakfast Club. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Stefan Lavera. He's pretty well known, obviously. I know a lot of you guys know who he is. He runs an amazing podcast. Some of the best material <laughs> available today uh, <clears throat> for Bitcoin. So welcome to everyone. We're going to have a little discussion this morning about some different things, establish sort of a baseline, and then maybe later in the show today, we'll bring some people up. If you guys have questions, you want to talk to Stefan or have some things to add. <clears throat> uh, quick shout out to Sats Radio, who's recording today. That's going to be done as a podcast. And to humble my co-host, good morning, Stefan. How are you? Hey, Alex. I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know you're super busy. Uh, you got the uh, Stefan's got the the, the Stefan Lavera world tour going on right now, so he is like uh, all over the place, constant, non stop. Where, where are you right now? So, I'm in Austin right now, but I'll be flying out to Atlanta tomorrow, actually. So, yeah, a bunch of um, different places. I was in Dubai uh, just before this, then I've been in Austin for a little while. Um, and it's been cool being here, been going around to some of the different uh, Bitcoin events, like we had BitDev. Uh, and then recently went out to Houston Bitcoin Meetup as well. So that was awesome. Good chance to meet the mining Bitcoin community out there. And um, yeah, it's just really, it's been good to kind of be in and amongst it. Yeah, very good. Exciting stuff. So there is uh, all kinds of interesting things going on in the world today. Uh, and uh, if it's cool, I'd like to dig into some of that. I I noticed a really interesting um, video that you retweeted. I don't know if it was this morning or yesterday, but it was a Southwest pilot who went on a complete and utter rant. And then uh, I guess I guess he got fired after that. But oh, that was I, I think I think that was like a parody video. But it was basically. <laughs> but um, the the I was retweeting because I thought it was funny, right? But uh, I think the message the. What it was really based on was that pilot who I think had apparently said, let's go, Brandon, at the end of a flight or something like that. And then, you know, a lot of people were up in arms about that. <laughs> oh, I get it. It was a parody. That was so damn funny, though. That sounds okay. funny. I need to check that out. Wow. It's hilarious. I'm going to put it in the nest. I, yeah, I, I think it was I, maybe I, Tim Dillon or someone who tweeted it out, and I thought it was hilarious, so I retweeted it because, I mean, because he was playing, he was like taking the mickey, right? He was like going one level even beyond um, what that pilot was doing, but obviously he was like, oh, this is what the, py- the pilot said, and, you know, just to, you know, play it off. <laughs> Goodness. 
but yeah, I think it's interesting to see, um, yeah, where, where that's all going. And, uh, I think these opportunities to obviously stack Bitcoin and obviously opportunities to mock and, uh, make fun of, uh, the regime and the establishment is great because these are things to help show that, you know, they don't really, they don't really control the way people think, uh, or at least this is, this is like a way of pushing back on that, um, as opposed to letting their control just run without, uh, like, to let them run just run unchecked. Yeah, and and that's like how humor has always been used, right? With uh, throughout history, if you look back, it's always been like the comedians and the artists <laughs> and the people who just like. You know, they're just willing to lay it all out there. They don't care. They're like, what you got? You ain't going to stop us. It's awesome. The, I saw that, um, like, just in the last couple of days, NPR tweeted out that uh, they finally figured out what Let's Go Brandon means, and they're horrified. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's, it's such a clever meme. So, you know, and I, the thing is, it would have been so much easier for them to just ignore it, right? And to, it would have m- more likely blown over quickly enough. But now that they're sort of making it, kicking up a stink about it, now it's just gonna it's gonna become a thing. Yeah, and that's precisely right. I mean, like if if there was something where where they were just really coming out and saying f you know f the president or whatever, that wouldn't go anywhere. But the fact that it's wrapped up in this meme of "Let's go, Brandon," I mean, just makes it. 100x more powerful and unstoppable so that's so dang funny good stuff so yeah like uh that's kind of some of the stuff i wanted to ask you about talk to you about today is is that like it seems like in the west um governments are just really unhinged lately they're just like way out there beyond um what's normal in, in a free society and just really kind of stomping on people's rights left and right and in ways that are just really unbelievable. Like I saw this other thing that you messaged about we're in Queensland. They've got all these penalties, right? That they've, they've had, like, if you, if you go outside without a mask, you get a fine. If you're outside and out. So I guess there's like a bubble, right? Where you're allowed to be. In Queensland, Australia, where you can't go outside of this bubble, and if you go outside the bubble, you get a fine. You get like an hour a day outside, something like that. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me, but I think it's like an hour a day, and if you're outside for more than that, you get a fine. And like all of these fines, if you don't pay the fines, now they're threatening to suspend your driver's license, freeze your bank account, seize your money, seize your property, like your homes. or They're threatening to take this stuff. If you don't pay your fines for for all of this, what are your thoughts on this, Stefan? Yeah, you're look, from it's there. crazy, right? Now, <clears throat> now to be clear, some of that infrastructure that we were talking about there, it's already there, it, but it would typically have been used in in the place of other crimes and other things. Whereas now, it's like they've expanded the range of what they can do this stuff to you for because of all the hysteria. And so, because of the hysteria, now you know they, they are sort of saying, well, they're going to basically re- repurpose some of this infrastructure to come after you if you are not sufficiently panicking like everybody else. And now there are some Australians who I speak to who, 
you know, they, they sort of say, oh, look, some of this stuff is, you know, it's clickbait. They're not, it's not that bad. And, you know, so to be fair, there are some Australians out there who really still think it's not that bad. I do, but hey, I'm, well, who am I? I'm just a guy who lived in Australia for 30 plus years. But I think this whole notion that they can force you inside your own home, you know, force this unscientific mask mandate on people, all this stuff, uh, I, I just think it's so wrong. People should have fundamentally a choice in the matter, and it should be about the private property owners. It really should be about who owns that property, what are the rules that they set for their property that they own. And in practice, what we would see over time is owners would have to balance out the factor of, okay, does it really stop the spread versus actually turning a profit and making a profitable business? Unfortunately, in the age of fiat money, central banking and governments can just print it up and almost put up this facade and keep keep the facade running for longer and in that way also take more control for themselves because they've been able to say i'm going to give you money and now because i've given you money you have to do what i tell you right and this applies in the u.s federal government giving money to the states it applies from the point of view of uh big business sort of in in some sense winning very much out of this versus mom and dad businesses who all got shut down or many of them struggled out of this. So, I mean, bringing it back to Australia, I think the thing, the biggest thing for me, the weirdest thing for me is that how many people just openly just thought, oh yeah, this is normal. This is okay. I'll just wait. And despite the continual shifting of the goalposts of saying, oh, you should, you know, we'll open up soon. Just wait, just wait. Now, Theoretically, as of uh, November, Australia should be open in terms of vaccinated people being able to travel, but unvaccinated people are still not able to travel in and out of the country. Uh, and I think, oh, in fairness, I think if you're an Australian citizen and you're unvaccinated, you may return, but I think you would still have to do like a two-week quarantine at, at your own expense, of course. So you pay $3,000 or whatever it is for that. Um, so I think the concerning thing for me is more just like where the population went, right? As in what, what the population just accepted. So many of them just accepted this and thought, oh yeah, oh well, it's not that bad. Because at the start of it, they thought, oh, see, look, we, we're Australia and New Zealand and so on. We locked down early and look how good we are compared to those other nations who, you know, et cetera. And fine. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Australia and New Zealand have lower COVID death, but I think they've just driven a lot more deaths in other hidden ways. And because people don't understand economics, they haven't gone to read economics in one lesson, they don't understand the concept of the seen and the unseen. And they just focus purely on what they think is quote unquote working in their own perspective. And especially for people who are essentially working online, they are part of the laptop Zoom class, they're not as impacted, right? Because they're 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 working at home, they're fine, they've got theirs and screw everyone else. That's essentially the sick attitude that I saw in, unfortunately, my fellow Australians. Um, and so that was what really disgusted me about so much of what's going on in Australia. Um, and then I essentially saw a lot of people taking, you know, the medication, let's say, uh, not because they were worried for themselves, but because they wanted their freedom back. And, you know, it's very sad. It's unfortunate. A lot of people were essentially coerced. Uh, and unfortunately, bringing it to 
what's going on in the broader world is I think a lot of the institutions that we thought would defend us or protect our rights have simply not done so. The courts did not protect us. The courts should have struck so much of this down, but unfortunately they didn't. And that has, I think that's been all around the world. There were signs as well. I think there were ways in which you could see that in certain places around the world, they just didn't care about rights. And I'll tell you what, that's something I've noticed, even just being in America here and there or chatting with Americans when I'm here in America, just that attitude towards freedom is totally different. Whereas in Australia, there's almost no no attitude about freedom. It's basically just like, oh, yeah, let's all just comply. Can I can I ask you, can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? Like when you see in America the attitude towards freedom or or is is a little different if I'm paraphrasing this correctly than what you than what you were seeing in Australia. What do you mean by that? Essentially, there's not really a respect for other people's rights. There's not a respect for other people's freedom, to be clear. They think of it Unfortunately, they uh, swallowed the propaganda hook, line, and sinker and think, oh, okay, it's all about stopping the spread and look how good we are at stopping the spread, despite, well, uh, the interventions, many of them, like many of which have not actually stopped the spread or have not actually lowered mortality. Or even if they naively stopped the spread of COVID, they've caused more death in some other way. So unfortunately, that's I think that's been the reality of what's gone on for a lot of these people. But I think to the point around attitudes to freedom, I think it's important to see that in America there is something special. It's actually that people here actually, not everyone, but at least some people, they still believe in freedom, where I don't, I don't think you could say that for Australia. And so for me, if I had to estimate how many people are libertarians or have some kind of respect for liberty in Australia, it's probably 1%, something, it's it's really, really low. Whereas if I had to estimate that in the US, it's a lot higher because there are just, even like, and I would say that's to a lesser extent these days, but it, it applies even across the aisle. Like I think there are probably American Democrats who believe more in <laughs> freedom than uh, so-called Australian center-right politicians. Um, and then obviously right-wing Australian, uh, sorry, right-wing American politicians, even if they are explicitly a Republican, often they still have respect for the idea of liberty, that notion of where, unfortunately, in Australia, it, it's really just not there. There's just not that respect for liberty. Uh, so now we are seeing some protests. So I think that's, it's a good thing that we're seeing that. Um, but in my view, unfortunately, there's not enough of it going on. There's not enough people who are actually trying to say something about it, do something about it. Like, from my point of view, people should at least try to say something about the crime that's going on. And uh, for a lot of people, it's just complacency. So, I mean, if I had to put it in simple terms, it's it's this whole uh, weak men create bad times. It's, it's in simple terms, it's that. Australia is, quote unquote, the lucky country. No recession for 27 or 28 years. Uh, they, Australia was riding this crazy ride bull run because partly driven by China demand and they were just having it too good for too long. And that I think is what made people complacent. They didn't, they forgot the reality that we have to actually produce things before we can consume. And with the fiat printer, 
it enabled them to mark to cover to paper that over for longer. The fiat printer allows them to paper it over for longer. Whereas if we were living in a hard money world in a Bitcoin standard, this stuff would not fly. I don't think it would fly. They wouldn't have the um, they wouldn't have the uh, resources and the economic uh, power to just sustain the nonsense for as long as they have. Uh, I agree with that 100%. And ultimately, like that's where that's the an end game for Bitcoin, right? Which I want to dig into more here as we go because it's it's ultimately it's the solution. It might be the only solution at this point. And I'm I'm talking in general in the West. Um, I have a theory. Oh, oh, by the way, let me let me before I jump jump into that something that you said, Stefan. That for people who aren't familiar with the saying. There's a there's a saying that goes, um, bad times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make bad times. That's the cycle, and that's what Stefan I think was referring to when he said that we're in that cycle of, um, good times make weak men, and and we're kind of suffering the effects of that. Um, but this is my theory, and I'd, please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I say this at the risk of coming across as sounding like the typical um, American exceptionalist, like Americans are special or whatever. I don't, I don't want to come across that way for people who are not from America. Um, but there, I want to point out something that, that is different, and I don't know if this has something to do with it or not. I mean, help me understand this from your perspective as well, Stefan. Um, so... The, the British sort of Commonwealth descendant countries, and then also p- perhaps many of the European countries, had this long history of monarchies and long history of governments whereby, for the most part, rights were, the thought was that rights were granted to citizens from, from the powers that be, whether it be the monarchy or whatever. And in America, the whole country is founded on the concept that our our rights are natural. They're natural rights. They come from God, or they are pre-existing prior to government. Is basis is the basis of it, and that the government doesn't grant us our rights. And, and on the contrary, the United States Constitution was drafted in a way to say that our rights are our rights are natural. They're not given to us by other men. We have those rights. Full stop. And the Constitution is there to restrain the government from trampling on those rights. And so it comes from a little bit of a different perspective. So I wonder if that has anything to do with the way people look at it. Like, you know, if if it's a if if people in Commonwealth countries countries are like, yeah, you should be grateful and thankful that the government's allowing you to do this. I don't know. Am I wrong off base? Is that what do you think, Stefan? So look, personally I agree with you, right? I'm coming from a libertarian mindset and I believe your rights are it's natural rights approach, right? You have these rights and it's actually on the government to not impinge on those rights. It's not that the government give, grants you these rights. But certainly the perception in Australia is just a very collectivist one. So they just believe in a very socialist idea that your rights are what everyone else agrees they are. Other people can just vote to steal your rights away from you and Therefore, you're in the wrong. And that's where this kind of idea that, oh, see, you didn't obey the hysteria law. Therefore, now we're going to punish you because you didn't uh, sufficiently, you know, show your fealty and your allegiance um, to the panickers. And therefore, we're just going to punish you now. And so, yes, there's still some 
semblance or some small amount of that Aussie rebel outlaw spirit, but a lot of that has been killed over time. It's been just crushed because of the well, because of the complacency, right? The culture just went weak. So it's a different conception of rights in Australia. Um, I the thing for me is it's I mean it's funny because I would like joke around with other libertarian friends in Australia and oftentimes they would look at me as though I was more like an American style libertarian just because of the way I thought about things or the way I would frame things, right? I'm I, I would think of it more like an American libertarian, whereas in Australia it was a bit more like some of them would call themselves more like quote unquote classical liberals, right? Or they would think of it in that sense. But anyway, I mean that aside, the main thing is just what are the prevailing attitudes towards people's rights. And so because the good times are good, right? Everyone was having a good time and people's property prices were going up and it was easy for them to just go along to get along in that time. And I think similar with New Zealand. So there's obviously some very cultural, a lot of cultural similarities between Australia and New Zealand. And so I think it it, it really does just come down to that. It's that there, there was no principled defense of rights. There was no principled defense of, oh, you should have the right to choose. There's nothing, nothing like that. It was all about, you know, what, um, you know, just what can we do to stop the spread in their in their mind? That's what they think. They so they think they're stopping the spread, and they think that you know this is, um, you know, like have a fair go, or they think of it like, how else would they put it? They would think of it like, oh, see, we're just we're just not leaving a grandma behind, kind of thing. Like, oh, see, you um, people who believe in rights, you're the ones leaving grandma behind, and you're just going to let her die, kind of thing. Like that's in their mind, right? I don't agree with it, but that's I'm trying to. Um, give you the insight into how they're thinking. And so that's how a lot of them thought. And now I would argue many of them were put into that state by a state of fear, right? So constant propaganda, constant, oh, we're all going to die. We're all going to, oh my God, look how bad this is, uh, despite the very low infection fatality rate, um, which I, I think people, unfortunately, just didn't get that. And they would just look at some crazy video from overseas and it would get shared on social media and then everyone there would be afraid and unfortunately even the center-right party the liberal party or the they're also referred to as the coalition because it's the liberal party and the national party so essentially what was meant to be the center-right party was still very locked down very socialist in their thinking very just economic idiots in that way that a lot of them thought oh look see we can just hibernate the economy we'll just pause the economy as though it's like a it's not a living breathing thing it needs it's a, it's a heartbeat it needs to continue moving people suppliers need to keep their product moving businesses need to keep their product moving businesses need to pay their employees employees need to pay their rent like all of this stuff they just didn't think it through they're a bunch of socialists and unfortunately the lack of economic education in this country also contributed to that because there weren't enough people calling it out. Of course, people like me and others were saying, this is wrong, this is stupid, this is bad, this is counterproductive. But unfortunately, there were just too few. The, the, the few people who were trying to speak out about what actually made sense to do, they just got drowned out because the, the fear took over. And so I think it's a, it's a few things. It's a failure of education. It's a massive propaganda uh, operation that's gone on essentially, uh, and a lot of incompetent or biased media who unfortunately don't ask good questions against the politicians. So they wouldn't challenge them. They wouldn't say things like, 
well, you say this is going to drop the spread, but did you really stop the spread? No, you didn't. So how how come you're claiming that a, a short and fast, snappy lockdown is what would work? They wouldn't ask questions like that. They would instead ask questions the other way. They would start being like, oh, why didn't you lock down sooner, Gladys? Or they would, they would ask these kinds of questions um, that essentially came from this very socialist or authoritarian collectivist kind of view where they thought, oh, see, the only reason it failed is because people just didn't lock down hard enough or early enough. There was no consideration of other things. They wouldn't talk about seasonality. They wouldn't talk about obesity rates. They wouldn't talk about treatment. They wouldn't talk about uh, the lack of asymptomatic spread or as in not denying asymptomatic spread, but just that it is so, so much lower. Um, So this whole idea, like if you add across all of these things, they basically sold the lie that you need masks or that you need to do social distancing and lockdowns and all of these things are necessary and to hell with the cost. We won't even think about the cost. They'll just do it. And so I think what's happened now, where we are now is Australia is slowly trying to reopen and they're under this premise that I'll see because now we mandated, we coerced 80% of the population basically to take the jab that that would be the thing to reopen on. Uh, But we'll see, right? I I don't know. Again, I don't claim to be an expert. I'm not some, you know, uh, immunologist or virologist or uh, epidemiologist. I'm not claiming any special expertise in these things. But all I'm saying is look at what happened in some of these countries that did have a high vaccination rate. It's not like they were able to just open up and all the cases went away. At some level, People have to be comfortable with, look, there are going to be cases, there are going to be people in hospital, and yes, sadly, there will be some people who die. I'm I'm sorry, but there's only so much that can actually be done um, to prevent death because we're all all human and we're all going to die at some point. And unfortunately, a lot of the world was not able to accept that. They were not able to accept this idea that sometimes you have to bite the bullet in life and you're not going to be able to save everyone. And in your attempts, to try to save everyone and in this kind of utopian ideal, you're actually going to end up killing more people than you save. And so that's, I guess, a, a bit of a snapshot or a summary of what went on in Australia, but also with my view of what went on there. Stefan, I think that that's a pretty good summary of what's gone on in the entire world, really. Like that's, that's pretty much what's happened everywhere. And I guess that there's so many things to unpack in that. I mean, one is the whole thing about, you know, if if you've got enough people who are upset about it, then, you know, screw everybody's uh, rights. People should just be made to do things. And I mean, that's basically mob rule. That's that is the, the kind of thing where in history has always led down very dark paths. You know, we've seen this before. We've been here before as human beings. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, Mob rule leads to things like like witches being burned at the stake, stuff like that. It's like uh, when you get enough people like, look, there's nothing wrong with society sort of adopting new ideas or whatever. But um, when it gets to the point where it's um, not good for humanity, you got to you got to take a breather. You got to step back and ask the question, what's happening here? Right. Like America is not about pure democracy. America is a constitutional republic. What does that mean? Well, it means we elect representatives who are hopefully 
well-educated, wise, patient, uh, understanding, has character in order to create sort of and craft the, the legislature that, that guides where we go, which is uh, the opposite of mob rule. I mean, you know, what if mob rule, it sounds like a great concept, but what if they decide at some point, what if the mob decides at some point that a certain group of people is bad, and this has happened many times throughout history, and then the mob decides to to go after uh, that group of people? You know, what if that group of people is 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 uh muslims or what if that group of people is christians or what if that group of people is gays or what if that yeah. group of people is australians i don't yeah. know Go ahead well, and here's another one what if that per- that group of people turn out to be right look at zero hedge getting shut down for the lab leak hypothesis on twitter only later for that to become the mainstream thesis back then it was oh you are not allowed to have this point of view you may not even voice your opinion and now that seems to be the mainstream point of view and so it's it's crazy how uh how people are able to sort of turn on a dime there all of a sudden say oh well we've always believed this now this was always the way well no it wasn't it took someone who had to challenge it and unfortunately uh someone might have gotten their rep burned or had their account shut down or you know lost their livelihood in order for us to make that progress. And so, yeah, and I think part of it also, like piggybacking off your comment as well, I think it just comes down to if you want freedom, it also depends on having enough other people around you who are well-educated and who are independent. And in some ways, governments and some of these uh, big companies who have benefited out of this win out of us being weak and dependent they win out of that they want you dependent because once you're dependent you can't say no you're stuck you're you're beholden to them in many many ways and so i think it's corruption at the education level people not understanding the economics of it not understanding sort of uh, the the philosophy and rights of other people it's 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 a range of things uh, all all these factors that came together to create this uh, perfect storm for the socialists and the collectivists to just run roughshod over everyone else's rights. And so, you know, we're, we're just living in that world. And so I just see it as it's like, it's sort of like a race against time in a way, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish long-term, right? I'm, I honestly think, you know, the white pill, as I was saying before on Twitter recently, is this idea that you could see it like, look, the black pill is, the socialists and the communists and the collectivist people are coming after your wealth. They're going to put in wealth tax. They're going to put in unrealized capital gains tax. It's a matter of time. They will get their thing through. You can't stop that. But on the other hand, Bitcoin will fix a lot of that. It will wash away a lot of their power. And so I think that that white pill is still stronger than the black pill in that sense. But you know, it's about how do you ride that out? How do you uh, manage things in the here and now? to make it to that long-term uh, vision. So I think that's kind of where the sat stacking and trying to take back your sovereignty in whatever way you can uh, are ways to give yourself that. And as we were saying, to the theme of having a bit more independence uh, as opposed to being dependent on the state. Yeah. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. So I agree. Uh, the whole point of this is not to be all nihilistic and to be all negative and to be all depressed. We're not trying to get anybody depressed here. We're we're looking at the landscape because it's important to understand what's happening, right? If if you're fighting a war, you need to have intelligence on what is occurring in the war. You need to know the troop strength of the enemy. You need to know where they're positioned. You need to know where the supply lines are. You need to know what the terrain looks like. All of these things are factors, right? You need to not close your eyes and stick your head in the sand and pretend things are not happening. But at the same time, the objective is not to look all that stuff, look at all that stuff, and then just get all nihilistic and then you know need to call the suicide hotline after you drank four bottles of wine. <laughs> the idea here is there is a path forward, a peaceful path forward, and I think it's Bitcoin. And I and I believe that many of the people in this room understand that and agree. Let's dig into that a little bit, Stefan. Like. Uh, like historically, when these kind of cycles occur, many times what ends up happening is war. Like, I don't want to see war. I've seen war. Don't prefer it. Um, would rather not see anything, you know, go kinetic. Um, and, and I personally think Bitcoin is a peaceful path forward. But let's let's dig into that a little bit and break it down, Stefan. Like, how, what does that look like and why? Because that's a big, bold claim, right? People in the Bitcoin are world say that kind of thing but um like mechanically mechanistically how does that work yeah yeah good question so some of it i think comes down to understanding how the state grows itself and part of that is through cheap debt so cheap debt and this big bond market where the government can sell its debt its bonds out into that market are a big part of how it funds itself and without that it would have to rely on much more explicit taxation. And the higher that explicit taxation goes, the more people just start moving to another country or people start even uh, not reporting income and things like that. People start, like, the more they try to squeeze, the, the harder people just try to find a way out and find somewhere else to go. And so I think that is fundamentally, it's that, that's the key point to understand is the cheap debt enables Warfare state, it, if it enables welfare state, it enables all kinds of things. So that's the main thing. But for individuals who are out there stack, stacking stats, you are getting more power in your favor because now you're becoming less dependent on the state. You, you know, because of number go up, right? So the factor that Bitcoin has this difficulty adjustment and it's got a strict limit of 21 million, the more that you can stack, Sooner or later, you'll reach a point where you have uh, some uh, some wealth used in your favor. You can deploy that in certain ways, whether that's running your own Bitcoin node or whether that's uh, getting your own area and defending it and uh, setting up your own little citadel. Right? It's I think all of these little things enable more uh, independent communities to be able to stand on their own two feet. Uh, and so I think that. I think that's just generally the direction things are going. And so the, those people who are better at stacking stats uh, will have more ability to do these kinds of things without being shut down or without being stopped. So I think that's a big angle of it. Um, and I think it'll also just be people will just up and move. I really think that'll also be a big part of it, whether that's moving to another state inside the United States or whether that is moving to another country, because there's 200 of them out there. 
And even if some countries, right, so the socialists and the communists and the collectivists, they're coming for your wealth. They're trying to do a global minimum tax on corporates, 15%. So this is what's coming. Now, but if we, if we analyze that from an economic point of view, they're trying to create a cartel. But guess what? There's lots of other countries out there. There's 200 of them. So not all of them will go full all the way. There will be some where people will be able to find ways out. Now, for some people, it's, too, it's just beyond the pale. They're just not willing to move countries. That's just too far for them. But for them, maybe they can find an area or a like-minded people inside their own country or maybe in another state inside their own country. So that's one example for those people. But for people willing to move internationally, I think there's so much more opportunity because you can basically restructure your affairs and go to a country that is not going to punitively tax you for being successful or punitively tax you for actually trying to deliver value or make a product for someone or do a service for someone. So I, I see that as the the fundamental direction and th the way things are going. Um, so it might not be what everyone wants to hear because they might not think what they might think. I'd rather just sit tight where I am. Uh, and maybe that's not feasible for everyone. Um, but I think even for those people who are stuck where they are, they'll still benefit because other people can move. And what happens is if the if the talented and rich people leave, then there's a bit of a brain drain factor. And so countries have to compete. They are they still have to compete. They can't just like keep uh uh taking the wealth of everyone and just getting off scot free for it because eventually people will leave. So I think those are some factors that are in our favor and I think those are some of the ways uh this goes. Yeah, you're you're actually starting to see that within the United States, for example. I mean, I can remember a couple of years ago when France was starting to um, come up with these really heavy taxation laws, and the the brain drain thing is real. Like, what ended up happening is that wealthy people who own businesses, et cetera, they just got up and started leaving. And in the United States, we've started witnessing that dynamic where you've got jurisdictions that are less sort of favorable to live in because the the policies and whatever that are being created are are just they're just not conducive to to living well right so people are just tired of that and they're, they're getting up and they're leaving um a lot of people i guess have moved from california down to down to texas that's been the big trend that everybody is fully aware of but that's kind of happening all over all over the united states right now and the question becomes we had this really interesting discussion last week we had a uh, untapped growth in here we were talking about bitcoin citadels and like the direction that everything's going to go and the question came up i think i was talking to tomer about this do we even need nation states anymore and what does all of that look like so this is a very interesting world that we're moving into and i personally have a lot of hope for what the freedom for what the future can look like we uh Welcome to everybody who's joining us. We've got Stefan Lavera here. We're talking about how Bitcoin is a pathway to freedom. Um, I do see some of you have requested to come up. We're I see you. We're going to bring you up here shortly. We're just going to finish up sort of creating a base layer foundation for discussion. And then what we'll probably do is rotate people up from the audience. If you have a question or something to add, we'll bring you up. Uh, we like to do this in an organized fashion. So if we bring you up as a speaker, we'll call on you one at a time. Please don't speak over each other. Um, Stefan, like, 
in in regards to the nation state thing one thing that tomer and i were talking about is the need for for uh mutual defense that's kind of how nation states a lot of how nation states came about and that kind of doesn't go away and the reason why i say that is, is if you think about the reason why nations have militaries at all one one reason is to is, is to establish and protect borders but in a in a in a world where resources are basically free flowing because you don't have this jurisdictional sort of clampdown and control of human activity because of fiat money you could imagine a world where where borders are probably a little less important but the but the national defense thing doesn't go away why well if you think about why countries have armies in the first place even if everybody in this room is peace loving like every some every let's assume everybody here wants peace and we're not the kind of people who who prefer violence there are still that small subset of human beings in the world that that will are willing to engage in violence to control other people right and if we find those people in charge of countries and nations that have military Alex are you there I think he muted himself by mistake. Yeah, that's what I was hey, wondering. Sorry, guys, I can't hear um, Alex for some reason. I can hear Humble and Toma. Let me leave and rejoin. I'll see if that fixes it once. Oh, oh, no, it's it's not it's you, Stefan. It's, it's not you. It's, it's yeah, it's not you. Stick it looks around. like he was having connectivity issues, Stefan. Oh, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah. all good. Yeah. So I mean, it, yeah, there's. Uh, yeah, I missed. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going on there. Um, the audience can hear what's going on. Yeah, because I can see Alex's audio line is still moving, but I guess. Oh, it shows muted on mine. And I and I got a message saying that he was having connection problems. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I just I just think there's such a big opportunity um, for people. Yeah, really to get to get into it and like just take the take back whatever freedom they can. Uh, I just think so many people are kind of sleeping on it sleeping at the wheel but at the same time it, it, we are starting to see some mass masses like slowly realizing inflation is a lot so you know i i think that's that's there uh and i think alex might have brought someone up a stranger as a stranger than fiction suzanne up so maybe if you've got a question do you want to go ahead we're gonna give it just a minute let everybody get back in here Oh man! In the meantime, I was watching. Um, NVK just retweeted this um video. <laughs> he's like, "This is Raul in short story," and basically, it's like this crypto trader DJing guy with like tattoos on his face, and he's like, <laughs> he's got like this dance music uh, in the background, and he's he's like watching the coin go up, and then like crashes, like, ah! and he's like, "Oh, it's so funny! It's really good." I'm Bagsy posted it. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's good stuff. All right, we're back. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I actually just tried to accept the post invite before and it kicked me out of the space. So <laughs> I'd say Twitter's a little glitchy this morning. Might yeah, I don't know. Just to be your phone. I, I don't know if it was the topic that we were talking about because I know our topic this morning was kind of naughty mm -hmm. in some circles, depending upon, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending upon who you are. <clears throat> Yeah, that's a possibility too, I suppose. What was the uh what was the last thing we were digging in there, Stefan? Uh we were talking about I, people moving. 
Yeah, yeah, people moving and like the whole thing about people moving from, say, you know, uh, California to Texas or other places. Mm. I was asking you about um, the the continuity or the need for nation states moving forward. Did you hear what I was saying about armies? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was the last point you were on. Yeah, it was on kind of defense and community. Like, would it be community defense? Would it be nation state defense? I mean, there's different answers and approaches there. Um, so, yeah. Did you want to go on? No, I wanted to get your your thoughts on that. Yeah. Like, uh, I I think that there's a need for for national defense or at least community defense, mutual defense of some sort, right? Because there's crazy people in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. So I see it like it becomes like a private police, private security, private defense problem. And so the way I see it is, large buildings, as as an example, in the same way that a large skyscraper would go and get fire insurance and other insurance they would have some kind of defense defensive insurance and so that money then and in the same way that if you're an insurance company uh you might offer to people to say look i'll give you a cheaper premium if you put in fire alarms or if you know whatever and at some level that insure and once they've got enough people in their pool that insurance company or fund might then actually start to pay to have uh, let's say a firefighting service in this example. So in the same way, I'm saying it might be like they'd that have defense and they would have like defensive agencies and defensive companies who do that kind of thing. So that might be how it works at like a corporate sort of level. And then at a smaller level, there might be people who just want to do like a neighborhood watch, community defense, uh, the Citadel, or it could be uh, the Citadel manager is uh he charges a fee for entry into the citadel or to be to live in the citadel and then as part of that that's his budget for private security um and maybe some of that is going to look a little bit more like i guess what i'm describing sounds a little bit more like a gated security world uh but i think that it might start that way at least and then then it kind of becomes a little bit more kind of like this idea of free private cities and becomes just more like an open free market world is how i'm seeing things go down um but yeah i mean i I don't have any um particular i guess uh like prediction about how it would would go but i think those are some ideas of how it could go in a way that sort of makes sense within the within some kind of a framework that we have today yeah it's a complex problem and uh you know what's interesting to me about it is that the mutual defense is actually was the original purpose of the United States federal government. Like uh, the whole idea there was to restrain the government from trampling on the rights of people, but to provide for the mutual defense, to provide for the post, to provide for roads, um, and the taxation was done by raising money a little bit at a time, depending upon whatever the project was. And it wasn't like a standing army kind of a thing. And it wasn't like an income tax thing where the government was constantly siphoning the wealth off of the population. So it was a completely different animal at the time. Tomer, were you going to say something about that? Yeah, I got, I've got, I've got some thoughts on this too. And some some are more mature than others because I think we're all, re-exploring what rights mean and how they need to be defended given what's happening in the world that we've been talking about and given what bitcoin may or may not 
help us with. But I, I, I share this view and maybe I, I articulate it slightly differently, which, which is the state wasn't created to grant us our rights. It should exist. It exists morally only if it's there to protect our rights, which I think is integrating what you and Stefan have been saying, which is, you know, we need a government to protect our rights from people who would otherwise violate our rights. We do not need a government to tell us what our rights are, and we certainly do not need a government to violate our rights, because with the government violating our rights, it's kind of like with friends like this, who needs enemies, right? Um, and your enemies are the people who are violating your rights. So if the state is violating your rights, it's it's switched role from being in in the service of protecting your rights to to violating it. And I, I think this has been a longstanding um, issue in terms of what we're trying to do with with Western civilization. Um, and and we've seen in this past couple of years all these rights violations driven by the fear of the virus. And and we've seen that a lot of people don't understand what rights actually are, why they matter, why they need to be def why the government needs to defend them. The governments have lost their way as well. And and then the, the question, of course, comes up for those of us who actually care about rights, our own and those of others. What can be done? And, and we start to look at Bitcoin as this peaceful way to preserve property rights amongst people who are prepared to accept it as money right? instead of as Stefan was saying the the fiat money that the money that's dictated by the government which is dictated by a government that no longer has responsibility and no longer is protecting our rights so that, that this to me is the the big big issue that that we're facing in history right now this is a historic issue uh, that's taking place and I you know, we look at the history of the currency of the money in the U.S. I'm, I'm going to wrap up really quick here. You know, we gold was money for most of the U.S. This is history. The dollar represented a claim on gold. Then it stopped. Now the money is failing. The the morality of the money is failing, and it could it could well be like I really see this as if. Bitcoin will be the currency of the world, but in, in saying that, it will also be the currency of the, of the United States, of the most free country in the history of the world. And free people will adopt this free money. Um, and that's not a thing against the United States. That is a very patriotic thing to actually do, to, to take freedom money uh, and use it for, for freedom in the land of the free. Um, and I say this as a Canadian, you know, uh, sitting so close to America and seeing differences here. The, the other thing I was going to say, but I was just I'm seeing a lot of Canadians leaving the country and it's mostly younger people who are more mobile. They haven't bought a house yet. They don't have kids yet um, or they have just a couple of little kids. But that movement has started here because over here too, this uh, recognition, like it, like as Stefan was describing in Australia earlier, there's, there's not enough protection and concern for rights. So I'll stop because I've rambled on in 16 different directions trying to synthesize or integrate what you guys have all been talking about. Those are my reflections on it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hearing you, Tomer, and I, and I think you're right on, man. Um, the idea that if you're against the US dollar, you're somehow against the United States, I think is is misguided. I think a lot of people maybe think that way, 
But the truth of the matter is, if you go back and you look at how the country was founded, it wasn't based upon like this patriotic thing where we've got the best money in the world needs to use it. And if you don't like that, you're a terrorist. Like, that's nonsense. That's not how it all started. If you look at in the Constitution, money was a specific weight of, of silver. And when why did they use a weight instead of a, a unit of denomination? Like, if you think about it like this. U.S. dollar is just a unit of denomination, right? The problem with that is its value, its purchasing power changes. So as a tool of measurement, it's, it's, uh, it's a problem, right? If you have a weight, that weight doesn't change, right? There's this saying, unjust weights and measures are an abomination, right? What does that come from? Well, it comes from if you can adjust something to whatever you want it to be that's an unstable foundation for anything it's an unstable foundation for a house it's an unstable foundation for a society and you can't have a money that privileges a small group of people over everybody else because eventually that's just going to break and if you're if you're the kind of person who's attracted to power if you're the kind of person who's attracted to domination of of others through force and through stealing their wealth well you might like that for a time, right up until the civilization crumbles from it and, and people are getting dragged out into this. I mean, look at the French Revolution. What happened? Like, I mean, this is a pattern that repeats over and over and over through history. So the cool thing about Bitcoin is, is that it provides us a peaceful pathway to doing this. Stefan, do you have any thoughts on how that works? Yeah, I think it's... <clears throat> We are just, I think everyone is going through a time where, look, some of us were already libertarian before all this nonsense happened, but I think people are going through a time where they've really started to question back, is the government serving me? Is it actually uh, doing what it says on the tin? And so I think for, for some people, that's, that's in, a, in a sense, it's reflecting like, the scales are falling from their eyes because up until then they thought they trusted the system. They trusted that these people in the government would look after them. But now it's quite clear they're not looking after you. They're they're oppressing people. They're oppressing a lot of people. And so I think it also yeah that and you know certainly good points around the measurement and how people play with that. Um, essentially, it's like people just abuse whatever they can get away with. And so. That is obviously like with Bitcoin, it's like it's a system that you can't, you know, the key parts about it are just frozen intact that you can't change that. And so that's that's the whole point of what we're trying to move towards um, compared to this system where they can just keep rug pulling us and rug pulling us forever after and just saying, oh, just a little bit more and you'll get your freedom back. Don't worry. Um, so I think it's it's just about more and more people coming to that realization that hey the government is not here to save you and no one's here to save you <laughs> you have to save yourself and uh bitcoin is how you can you know at least if you're if you're competent and willing to take some responsibility for yourself you can save yourself well, most of us at least yeah so uh, welcome to everybody who's joining us. Um, we're talking about how Bitcoin is a peaceful pathway to freedom. 
we're going to start bringing people up. If you're in the audience and you want to join the discussion, you have a question that you want to ask or you have a, a thought that you want to add, um, come on up. We're going to add you and we'll call on you one at a time. Please uh, be polite. Don't talk over anybody. Um, and if we're in discussion and you have a, if you're already on the stage, you have a point you want to make, put your hand up and we'll call on you one at a time. Uh, good morning, Nate, and welcome. Hey, th thanks. Uh, thanks, Humble, for having me up. Uh, I just climbed in just after uh, you brought this back up. I didn't catch the first uh, first hour of the program, but I came in when you were talking about um, how is policing going to take place? How is defense going to take place? Uh, and I'll jump into that complex problem. And, and you're absolutely right, Harnett, that it is a complex problem. Uh, I, I think the the best answers actually have to come from a public funding. I, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, we've kind of uh, skipped over the part of history and actually is continuing to happen now in some pockets of society where you have um, gang protection uh, and you can uh, use whatever culture that you want to, but there's going to be a fight over who's going to have protection rights over a particular community, even with uh, private military contractors. Uh, then you start having uh, violence be uh, the weapon of choice as far as being able to um, uh, sway the decisions of people that actually have the purse strings of the communities that need the policing. And I, I think that that needs to be addressed as well, which is why I think that uh, public funding and uh, public employment or public um, uh, um, it starts with A and I can't remember the word uh, uh, appointment. Uh, is more is more appropriate at, at that level, and I'm more of a conservative. I'm I'm not uh, in, in the liberal bent by any stretch, but there there are some times where you've got to kind of weigh the options and figure out which one's going to be more beneficial for the community. All right, thanks for uh, thanks for coming up. Thanks for adding, Nate. Good morning, Mihai. How you doing? Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, I'm all right. Just came back from doing some shopping, spending some sats in some fiat, unfortunately, and more of it because prices went up. So let's say I'm roughly okay. Uh, in regards to the subject we're here, I I do believe, and uh, I do believe when I say that all of us feel that something is wrong, and uh, I am very sure that most of us cannot put their finger on what that is and it's all a bunch of questions from left and right questions that every time you are asking apparently you're being subjugated or diminished or put pinned down because why do you dare to question the authority apparently these days you can't even open your mouth and those questions imagine they are not even insults they're proper raised concerns now, at the end of the day, if you think about it, and this is why uh, we're all here, we're trying to see if we can find a solution. And first of all, if we can actually see what is wrong. We have a hint, in my opinion, that what is wrong could be the money. We have a hint. I don't know how, uh, how we reach that conclusion, maybe because the prices, everything, uh, everything against that currency is basically going through the roof. And that currency, you can see that currency is dying in your pocket from day one day to the other. I 
I personally believe that currency should work for the people, not people for the currency. But the current state, we are working for the currency. If you're trying to put that currency, and I, I spoke like this in many spaces, and I have a little bit of a rant every now and again. If you're trying to put the, that currency, we're supposed to uh, uh, increasing um, uh, purchasing power over time because that's your blood, sweat, sweat, and tears. That's your hard work that should appreciate for time, not depreciate. Because you didn't do a, like rubbish work, isn't it? Every, in my opinion, especially uh, with small individuals, your work should appreciate. Why this run to put your money into something, anything but money? Looking for gold, silver, precious metal, left and right. What am I going to buy? Classic car, uh, jewelry, something that can withhold that value. If it increases, good for me. But is this chase, uh, rat chase all over the place? At the end of the day, I do believe also that we are very distracted. It's not very easy to keep our eye on the ball. And we know where the ball is. Now, there is a handful of individuals in this society that they have absolute power. They know what is wrong. And they will do anything in their power to maintain that power. Because by, by, by supporting the wrong things in society, they maintain that, that status. I'm not here to debate, for example, what we're doing between us. It's all noise, in my opinion, flashing colors left and right, as I said earlier, that you can't keep your eye on the ball. We need to fix something in our society. We have a hint of what the problem is. And now we have apparently a little bit of a solution. At the current state, and I said this before, at the current state, we are so desperate that we can, we are so desperate that we need to try literally everything, anything. We can't leave, leave this to last for longer than what it was already done. Not only that, uh, you look at the charts and charts don't lie. Look at the purchasing power of, um, of the dollar in comparison with literally any service or asset out there on the market. Definitely something is wrong. They took the gold away from us. That was, I guess, one of the, one of the solutions. Apparently, we don't have that gold and they took it by force. And the debt is like how many times? 10 times over the gold uh, reserve they have? It doesn't, the numbers don't even add up anymore. So if you start to ask these questions, like you have, for example, sometimes every now and again, whistleblowers popping up with, um, uh, what do you call it, the information that we actually need for us to sort this problem, they get locked up. It's a free society with, with freedom of information. I don't think so. The money is free. The peer-to-peer, the -peer, it's basically hijacked by the individual who has uh, God knows what kind of interests. Internet, it's a brilliant thing. It brings us all together. This also has been hijacked. Money has been hijacked. Everything peer-to-peer -peer has been hijacked. When bastards see opportunity, they take it. And they take advantage of our, our, our foolishness. Our, it's not, we are not being, even being fooled. We're being human. They lost touch with humanity. That's why they can do this to us. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Henry Ford, when he had his, uh, his company, he had a glimpse of what the, what the hell was going on in there. And all of a sudden he said, if these people of this nation understand how the monetary system will function, there will be a revolution by tomorrow morning. He was, he was pinned down. He didn't say much, much, much in relation to this subject after that. Signs are everywhere. 
but it's very difficult to 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 chase them because they they are being hidden with purpose and could, with good intentions uh, with um, sorry with bad intentions it's it, it, they're doing what they want basically i i don't un, i i don't want to say for you to buy bitcoin all i say for everyone in this space and everywhere ask questions and do not be afraid to open your mouth and that's all i have to say Wow, <laughs> that was quite the rant, Mihai. Like, uh, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with any of that. <laughs> uh, you got any thoughts on that, Stefan? Yeah, I think like, we do need to <laughs> encourage more people to really critically analyze. And you know, it's almost it's almost comical when you think about it. And I'm sure many of you had a similar experience. But for me, going through high school. What were some of the books they recommended? 1984, Brave New World. And yet, look at the world that's being created for us now. So in high school and things, they would teach us, oh, yeah, look, critically analyze things. And, and yet, I'm puzzled at how few people actually did do that, how many people actually did try to take the time to uh, actually question what was being fed to them in terms of the lies being told on TV, in media, and by government and politicians. How many people actually did do that? It's, it's, it's a much smaller number, at least speaking from my, uh, in the sense of Australian people who I know. Um, I think in America, maybe a little bit more, but still not enough to like meaningfully challenge it. And so I think Part of it for me is just a lot of LARPing, right? A lot of people who sort of say things but then don't actually follow through and do it. So that's uh, something there. I think Thomas got something to say. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think of, I know a lot of people who are reading 1984 right now, and I know a lot of people who read 1984 as we grew up. I, I, I'm old enough to have lived through, I was 14 years old in 1984, and so the book got a lot of press because that was the year and everybody was looking, read the book, did 1984 come about? And it hadn't quite come about by 1984. It took a few, you know, the technology was a few years behind. Um, and and certainly Brave New World was another. And part of what I was going to say was these books were, for most people, assigned readings in school. And it may be that people just, you know, had this attitude at school that was, well, I got to pass it. I got to learn enough to pass a test. Uh, I got to get a grade or I, or I just got to get through this year because I, I, I want to get past it. And they didn't really. So this book has been read by many people, but it hasn't been appreciated by as many people because when it's framed not as a voluntary thing that you choose to read to learn fr from, but as an assignment, you, you tend to learn it differently or view it differently, right? You're not doing it from love. You're doing it from force. Um, and so I, I think that's why so many people missed the message of of the book which was in so many ways that you know the danger of the government crushing the individual spirit and and manipulating the population to, to crush their own spirits and to crush the spirits of their neighbors and it, it's kind of sad to see that we see so much of this of the shadow of that or or the, <laughs> that that book is a reflection of this kind of attitude that people have fallen into of compliance and support and worship of the state, no matter what it says. Um, 
and you know, I, I don't, I don't really know much more to say about it. It's just kind of this reflection of, given that we were educated, we were taught about rights, we were taught about the Bill of Rights or the Constitution, we were taught about all these things growing up, and we don't see that much respect or understanding of it. It's a criticism of the failure of our education system that that people haven't seen this and then don't see the principles and the importance of freedom of speech or freedom of choice. Um, and it's and it's a shame. Yeah, uh, I'm with you, Jamal. Yeah. Uh, Nate, you got something? Yeah, as far as the, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution is concerned, I think that uh, to our own demise, we're not accepting the risks of it. I don't think that people want to, un they don't want to take a look at the fact that they're, they're given a document to where you have not only the freedom to succeed, but the freedom to fail. The freedom to be a community one with another so that those failures are, are less, but they're done on an individual and community basis. They're not done. We're not willing to take those risks, not only the risks that, uh, of failure, but also the risks of relationships. People don't want to have actual relationships anymore. It, we're so separated from each other because we're even on these things like these faces. We're not looking at each other face to face. We're, we're, we're just talking to each other. I can't see your face and your facial gestures in, in when I'm talking to you. So I don't know whether you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me as I'm continuing to blabber on. So we're, it's, it's the fact that we need to be risk takers again. In, in free society, because that's when wealth actually is created, when we're actually able to have relationships and take risks together and innovate together, have stupid ideas together, and then try to fix them so that they're good ideas. We're missing the point of what the Constitution was intended to give us, and that is the freedom to do what we will so that we can succeed together as uh, in relationships as a community. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. No, like there's no way to paper over the fact that you have to take risks to create anything new. You have to learn. Learning, you know, success usually is a is a destination that has a lot of failure along the way, and you don't just you don't just decide to do something and then on the first try it succeeds. And and there's no way to avoid it. There's just you you have to take chances you have to learn from mistakes you have to make mistakes along the way and and what we've really seen in this past couple of years around around how we've tried to deal with the, the virus has has been this oh we cannot make any mistakes we cannot take any risks we we have to look at someone and say that the answers and, and rather than we have to learn the answers together there's been this expectation that the authorities know the answer and like this was something new and we've been no, fooled no. In, yeah we've been fooled into thinking that there is a way out of the risks and that is the safety through government and they've spun it and they've spun it well enough to the point where we're at the point where we're at now yeah that's what that's well put right there there just is there's no magic there's no there's no silver bullet that makes reality the reality of reality go away good times make weak men good morning lawrence Good morning, everyone. I love sneaking in when I can while dropping off my young people in the morning to hang out with you guys and see what you're up to. Uh, I wanted to come up and comment on what you guys are just talking about because it takes me back to that book wreck I left on Friday, uh, that Anatomy of the State by Rothbard. And it's just, it's amazing what happens when people associate government with the people, you know, as if they are actually us or a, represent, or a fair representation of us and our will. You know, and it puts people in this position where they see themselves and government kind of as interchangeable 
and they indeed are not, you know? So when that happens, you see people in positions where they associate themselves with the government and the actions that they take. And because of that, they have this thing where they're associated with it as if whatever they do must be for my good and I acquiesce or I agree. And by doing something like that, it puts us in this position where we never question it. I mean, just look at the people that, that look at the government and rah, rah, like they are something or uh, some entity that is that actually has their best interest at heart, you know, and it's just it's very it's very scary to see how deeply we are into that environment, at least here in the States, where people just don't even have an unction to question what government is, do- is doing or what they are up to. So a lot of times I think it's similar to when someone gets scammed where they don't want to allow someone to show them or tell them that they've fallen for a scam because then they they're concerned about what that says about them and i think a lot of people fall into the same trap when it comes to the criticism of the state or their government because they feel like well if i admit that they have been tricking me for all these years what does that say about me so down to the individual i think a lot of times people tend to not be able to separate the two and they feel like if they if they fail for the government's trick then they feel like that shows them as some kind of failure or some idiot because they actually fell for it. So that's what I kind of see there in that dynamic you guys were just speaking about. Yeah, just to add to what Lawrence was saying, I think part of it is you have to be willing to admit you are wrong. And that's hard for a lot of people. A lot of people struggle with that and they would rather persist in what they thought was right, even if it is wrong, and then just go down that train until it until it's the end of the line and there's no possible other way out. And that's what we've seen with Hysteria 19. It's what we see with fiat money. It's what we see with a lot of things. And they would rather just believe the media that tells them they were right. And so that in one way shows us we actually have an edge for a while. The fiat media will continue lying about the actual rate of inflation, the actual CPI, the actual all manner of things. And the people who just continue with high trust in the system will continue believing them. They'll be like, oh, yeah, inflation really is low. Don't worry. It's transitory. Don't worry. And so, unfortunately, they they will get wrecked on this. And with Bitcoin, you really have to drop your ego and be like, hey, I was wrong about something or other. I was wrong or I didn't know enough about it to have an informed point of view. And so, in many cases, you like, and I think that's what you'll notice even in the Bitcoin world is at least amongst the Bitcoin Twitter group, you, you tend to find people, they don't respect LARPing or they don't respect people who don't really understand or are trying to contribute. They don't respect people who are out there trying to big note themselves. That's just not what the, I guess, the Bitcoin community or at least the kind of online hardcore Bitcoin Twitter people, they, they, they respect. They respect people who make contributions. They respect people who are trying to teach, educate, contribute in some meaningful way. Um, and so I think that is like what you'll see is there's, there's like that big cultural difference. And so when people are first learning, sometimes they come in and they sort of come in with the, and this is a classic, right? The whole, hey, I just found out about Bitcoin and I'm here to fix it and I'm here to change it in some way. And it's like, no, you need to, you need to put in your time, do your learning. Um, you have to humble yourself and drop the ego uh, or otherwise you'll get wrecked. Yeah, 100% true, 100% true. Like, we don't learn unless we admit we're wrong and we don't know, right? It reminds me of um, rebuke is better for a wise man than 100 blows on the back of a fool. Like, what does that mean? Is It means that a wise man is going to admit that he's wrong or doesn't know 
So when he, he encounters correction, he learns from it, gets better and grows, right? That's that whole critical thinking aspect where, Stefan, you were just saying, you can't come in and try to big note. That's the fool, right? Like, don't tell me anything. I already know. Like, you can, a hundred blows on the back of a fool part means you can, you can try and correct that guy, but he thinks he knows already. There's nothing that he's going to learn from you because he thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. Good morning, Ant. How are you doing? Morning, Alex. Morning, everyone. I'm just getting ready for my big Dallas trip, and I'm like listening to all y'all talk and Stefan. What you're saying is really just resonating with me. So uh, I know I really appreciate it. I've told some of y'all my story on plasma and how you know these. It's like it goes all the way back to these entrenched systems that that we've been born into, and how you know I had a a teacher who was telling us that there were three states of matter. And like, I mean, this goes back many, you know, years now. I'm, I'm already been out of school a long time, but, and I guess plasma is well accepted in the school books now, but back in the nineties, it wasn't, you know, but it was like, take our word for it. We're the centralized teachers. We have the books. And anyway, she's teaching us about the three states of matter. And I just, you know, raised my hand. I was telling her that there's, you know, plasma. I'm like, well, what about plasma? And, you know, it was just a microcosm. I mean, every situation is different, but this is like a little experience of like how the system is set up where it's like, you know, they know more. We don't know what we're talking about. And I was just a kid and I was telling, you know, her that plasma is a state of matter. It exists. So then suddenly it was, well, do you want to teach the class? You know, you're being a smart aleck. You know, do you want to teach the class or being a class clown and interrupting my my lesson, you know? And I really wasn't. I mean, I was trying to add value to the conversation. I really wasn't trying to troll. I was like, well, I had just learned about plasma myself. So at any rate, it didn't go on very long. I'm up there teaching the class. And I did. I let everybody know, like, you know, there's plasma in the sun. There's plasma in fire. It's a state of matter. And these books probably aren't, you know, adopting it or telling us that yet. But, you know. You just got to question these, this system. I mean, we were born into this stuff and like it, it's all we've ever known. And Bitcoin is like really opened my eyes. I mean, I was already a former punk rocker and everything railing against the system. Bitcoin was a perfect fit for me, but it's just like, wow, like just seeing and listening to what you're talking about today, Stefan, about just, you know, just like what we know versus what they know and what they're telling us just really ex- Really impactful stuff for me this morning. And can I, I just wanted to follow up on what you were saying about the what we've been taught and how we've been taught it. Like we, the vast majority of us, essentially all of us, have grown up in the shadow of the age of discovery. Like we weren't we weren't around when the when the atomic theory of matter was proven, which is not that long ago. Like a couple of hundred years ago, we didn't know that matter was made out of atoms, as as an example, and hundred years before that, we didn't know that the sun was at the center of the solar system. And we all get handed all these theories now when we go in, when we go through our education. Many of them are quite valid and true. You know, there's questions at the edges of them as there are with all of science, but we don't get taught how these truths were discovered. We don't get taught the method. We just get told the truth. The sun isn't it, it took thousands of years of human civilization before we figured out that the sun was in the middle of the solar system or that matter was made out of atoms or exactly how gravity works 
you know, all of this stuff. And I, I think that that's, you know, I've, I've come back a couple of times now on this call to the education. If we were taught how these discoveries were made, we would understand the process of learning and the process of discovering. And we'd be able to critically evaluate any kind of new theory as to whether it adheres to a proper process. But we, when we're not, when we're just told that this is what's right and this is what's true and it's been proven, we form this expectation that these, that these discoveries are just gifts from somewhere and that we just need to be told them and we need to accept them and, and believe them. And so that's this whole piece of curiosity and research and trial and error, right? Like none of these things actually were discovered instantly. It took tremendous amounts of effort yeah. to figure out these things. And, and that's what we're not really taught. Like we, we aren't taught the, we don't go to science class and are taught the history of how, who was involved and how did we find out that the sun is at the center of the solar system? Who was involved and how do we prove that matter is made out of atoms? And what consequences are there? So and again, this is, this is all just part, part of the kind of reflections that we're having here this morning. I don't have that much more to add to it, but it shows, it, it's to address the, the weakness of what we consider to be education, which leads us to not being properly educated. Yeah, look, I think I agree with a lot of that, Tomo. I think for me, though, I think in some cases it's that maybe I was taught some of these things in science class or whatever at school, but I forgot, you know, I forgot the exact how they, because they might tell you the story of, oh, hey, this is how, you know, this guy made this scientific discovery and this is what previously people thought and then he discovered this. But I think part of it is just like some of it, so some of those things we just forget because there's only so many things you're going to remember and maybe that's not your specialty. Maybe it's just not what interests you. Um, and so maybe for a lot of the masses, the question of rights and what is right and economics, maybe just for them, it just wasn't that interesting. Whereas for me, the economic stuff was really interesting. And so I focused more on that. And so for me, it was always like a really interesting thing. And I'd you know go and read economics things just in my spare time, just for fun, right? Just because I liked it. Uh, so I think, some of it is just like we can't just be specialists in everything and so some of it is just like you're just going to forget because it's not your area um but certainly i think the point is this whole idea of trusting rather than verifying i think that's been um definitely a very that point definitely resonated strongly with me about how there's all these people out there who just uh almost get told a certain thing on the TV, the television tells them this is how you be a good person. And anyone who's not doing that, all of a sudden now it's a monomania, right? Because you weren't exactly uh, kowtowing to the exact, you know, hysterical proclamations. Uh, Lawrence? Yeah, I was just going to add, man, it's just like, it's so funny to me because like, even in this Bitcoin Twitter space, right? You run into and you encounter people that are almost afraid to speak. Right, almost afraid to to give their perspective on things, and uh, I, I in turn always encourage people to share their perspective because I truly believe that every person you haven't met, uh, that there's an opportunity for you to learn something from them. And if we don't speak up and share our perspectives and give people that opportunity or that choice to actually challenge the perspectives and the beliefs that they hold, then no one can really learn. And that's how we end up with these quote unquote centralized or de facto authorities on matters when they don't even know enough or even have the right perspective. Like case in point, when I was running my space on last Tuesday, we were talking uh, in my black and bullish room. And then the, uh, the, uh, the topic of Nigeria came up 
And then there's one lady that I know named Mary, who happens to reside in Nigeria, came up to share her perspective on what's actually happening in the actual country. You know, but we find ourselves so many times, all these people from the U.S. and the U.K. commenting or talking about what's happening in a region that we don't reside in. Right. And then someone has a different perspective that they can share with us because they're closer to the matter. And it doesn't have to be that specific, but just just like uh, what Ant was saying earlier, just because you're a child doesn't mean that you can't have a perspective that leads someone to increase their learning. Because honestly, for me, if I look back on my 40 years in life, I was an intelligent idiot until I had children. And then the perspective of children in my life and that relationship taught me way more than I learned in like the first 25 years of my life. So like just that difference of someone seeing it different from you do can increase your learning exponentially. So don't be afraid to share your perspective. Don't be afraid to listen to and hear someone's perspective and evaluate it to see if it might change some of the beliefs and things that you currently hold. Uh, I really believe it's one of the biggest keys to unlocking the, your next level of learning. My man. This, is one of the, this is one of the things that I love about Bitcoin is that it's, you know, we, we've grown into that. We've been born into this system of, you know, just trust us. Don't verify, just trust it. You know, somebody, we always say the word like, they're going to do something like they're going to fix it or they're going to provide it you know, or they made it, but it's like with Bitcoin, you know, you can't mess with the rules. Like you can't fake it, you know? So I hope, my hope is that with, you know, eventually there, there will be a, uh, like a sea change with people's desires where, you know, if Bitcoin is a, a, a success in their minds where they can understand that, yeah, I do need to go verify things for myself. It doesn't just stop with my money. It's like, everything like these nutrition labels i mean not to get off topic but i mean it's like everything you know i need to look at really everything and maybe it's right but at least i checked it out myself a lot of people don't even do that all right so we've got about 15 minutes left and we're going to wrap we have a special guest today thank you everybody for joining us we've got stefan lavera here we're talking about why bitcoin is pathway to freedom popcorn 321 go ahead good morning good morning thanks for having me up here um I just wanted to get the panel's uh, opinion uh, around KYC uh, Bitcoin. So one path I potentially see the government going down is um, taxing unrealized gains in the future on Bitcoin, for example, say in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and I, I think one, good, or one thing the government is good at is um, grabbing a majority of the population. I feel like we're all very early and then... 10, 15 years, um, if Bitcoin does well, uh, it's going to be easy to say to uh, easy to say, oh, we can just tax those crypto people who invested years ago, and they can do that because they know how much Bitcoin we've all bought. As I feel like a majority of us um, are buying Bitcoin through KYC channels, so just want to get the panel's discussion on that. Stefan, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think it's a hard question. One thing that always comes up for me, and obviously, yeah, like KYC versus non-KYC coins. For me, if I had tried to acquire everything non-KYC, I wouldn't have as much as many stats as I do right now. You know, so that's one thing. 
Um, because I think at the end of it, like if this process of hyper Bitcoinization is happening over, call it 10 years, 15 years, we don't know. No one really knows. You, you don't want to be at the end when the music stops and without a chair. Right. So that's the important thing. Um, but I also appreciate that, uh, th- there's a risk w- with KYC as always, right? Like it, data, there could be a honeypot. The government could come after people in the future. Like definitely, that's a risk. So I think, I think it's a multi-pronged approach, right? You might choose to have some coin, some coins that are KYC, and you might also acquire some non-KYC coins, uh, a smaller stack on a separate, you know, wallet or a separate hardware wallet or you know whatever you're doing that with. That's one way to think about it. You might be thinking also about this idea that as more and more people come into the Bitcoin ecosystem and start hodling, then you're building a base and it'll be harder and harder to go against that base. And so politically, it might become less and less feasible to enforce this kind of idea. Uh, And I think that comes back to what we were saying a little bit uh, earlier on. I'm not sure if you joined us recently, but I was talking about this idea that it's almost like a race against time because the collectivists want to impose wealth tax, unrealized gains tax. And then on the white pill side, it's Bitcoin is rising, number is going up, and it's going to force a lot more accountability in the overall system. And they won't be able to fund the kind of kinds of mass state wealth expropriation that they previously could have. I think it'll it'll reach those those two are those two trends are at odds. And I think it, there's a lot of things that are still up in the air about, let's say, for example, uh, we build enough Bitcoin hol- holders out there all around the world, and in the different countries, they represent a big enough voting base or a political party even, a single-issue political party or a single uh, a base of voters who are single-issue voters saying, I don't care the other policies, I just want lowest possible Bitcoin taxes and lowest possible um lowest possible uh you know capital gains or whatever other implications th- that could also be an angle uh, i think there might be people who uh try to go out and point out you know the ineffectiveness of aml and kyc right like of course governments enforce this stuff now but if you could build up enough of a political base around pushing back let's say defunding fadf or fighting back against aml laws or, or rendering them obsolete someday that I think these are possibilities. So I think it's a range of things. Um, but there's all sorts of different strategies. You might think of it like, look, I'm going to have some KYC and some non KYC. You might think of it like I'm planning to move overseas. You know, there's all sorts of ways you might go about it. Understood. Thank you. I also just, uh, put a link up in the nest. And it's a really great podcast that Stefan did um, with, I don't know if it's, uh, it's one of the lead developers, I think, from Sparrow. Yeah, yeah that's right. Anyway, yeah. Like, so for those of you who are not familiar, go research Whirlpool. Um, that's a, a way to sort of get forward-looking privacy if you do it correctly. Um, who's next? Michael, good morning. How are you doing? Hey. Um, I was listening in on the earlier one. I don't know if it bugged out and I got kicked out or something, but Stefan, you're talking about brain drain from Australia, I believe. I was kind of catching it. But what I was curious about, I, I think this is fascinating because it 
started as like a penal colony with like prisoners and now it's like it's like full circle now it's like a prison colony again um per se and i'm just i'm wondering what your theory is of future developments of brain drain from australia or what uh kind of repercussions are going to happen from the tight lockdown if any or if people are just okay with it i'm just curious uh you may have already touched on this earlier but this is something that's very interesting to me yeah maybe you can touch on it yeah look so i have to distinguish between i guess what i think should happen versus what will happen because here's the thing I recently uh, went back to Sri Lanka and I was meeting some cousins there and stuff like that. And look, from their point of view, they're a lot um, more, um, they're a lot poorer, right? And so for them, the opportunity just by being able to go to a rich Western, Western nation is just that much more that they would still, regardless, they would go to Sri Lanka, they would go to Australia if they had the chance, right? They would, they're jumping to go there because the opportunity is just incredible. Um, but that said, in a world of digital commerce, in a world where there's, you know, Bitcoin, um, it, it just opens up all these possibilities. And I think we are going to see more and more people who have better options exercise those options. So that's one way I see it going. And so I see it like basically rich and smart people who can find better opportunities overseas will do that. But a lot of people will be kind of stuck or don't want to leave and they'll just kind of because of the complacency factor, right? So, you know, while I might want lots and lots of people to brain drain and go out there and let's have a competitive jurisdictions aspect of it, I also recognize there'll be a lot of people who just don't care about that and will just take it because it's better than what they've already got, right? So it's kind of a, it's I guess it's hard to sort of thread that needle, but I think, but I, I do believe the the overall push will be towards those nations that actually offer better freedom or states you know in the US that offer better freedom so i definitely see that um that competitive desire and i think it might it might not just be about lower taxes or whatever but it might just be like oh this is a cool place to be you know like yeah, as an example i think in the US i think i like um that texas has these these bitcoin scenes growing right like in austin they've got like a very strong developer community bitdev is a big community here in Austin, over in Houston, it's a big mining scene. So that recent meetup I went to, the Houston Bitcoin devs, it was I I think it was close to three hundred people there that night. So it was huge. It's awesome. So I think people will just go to the places that are cool and offer opportunities, lower taxes or better business and job opportunities. And especially in a digital world where people are working online, especially in the Bitcoin world, you know, there's so many people who are already working remote anyway. So you know, I see it like it's those trends will continue. So even though people have some attachment back to their home country or where they grew up or where their family are, I, I really do see it like people will start restructuring or going overseas and going to other states, even if they don't go overseas. Cool, man. Thanks. Uh, see you in a few days in Atlanta, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Looking forward to Atlanta. All right, Bad Wolf, did you uh, have a comment, thought, question? Oh, yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, I, I've been listening this morning uh, to Stefan. Thank you, Stefan, for, for coming up and, and talking with us this morning. A um, couple of things uh, stood out to me. One of the things is, I guess I'm part of that Zoom class, right? 
Um, and, and so I, I've kind of, I've always have been, I mean, I'm a, I'm a creature of the, of the dot-com uh, era and um, I've uh, been uh, just kind of seeing how, you know, the, the Jeff Booth, you know, as he describes the tech deflation, how it's sort of uh, reshaped um, our society, how it's um, really, it, it's, it's been causing job dislocation, dis, uh, dislocations uh, to a, to a large degree. That's kind of been, slowly resolving itself in a way like you see the gig economy popping up like that has sort of absorbed a lot of the job losses that we had through tech deflation but you know i'm i'm wondering like if we get to like a radical tipping point you know in the and this is kind of an austrian versus keynesian economic question um for stefan What's the Austrian alternative to UBI? Because it seems to me that the, the Keynesian answer is, is, is provide UBI to help those who are disaffected due to this, you know, changing economy, shifting, you know, to more of a virtual economy, uh, shifting in ways which those who are not part of the Zoom class or those who are at least not getting some um education or some momentum in, into that e economy in some way finding some way to to fall in line and, and be part of that like they're being left behind and and so that's where government wants to provide ubi because they don't want an uprising they don't they don't want to have violence because that can happen if you get enough of a population who has no access to um to the economy then there's going to be a revolt so What's the Austrian alternative to UBI? Sure, yeah, great question. Um, these are definitely topics I've hit on the podcast, maybe not in recent episodes, but yeah, certainly a lot of my earlier and probably middle of the kind of catalog episodes are hitting on these kinds of questions. But yeah, absolutely happy to answer it. So here's how an Austro-Libertarian is thinking about it, right? So an Austrian-Libertarian, like Austrian economics-influenced Libertarian is thinking about it is, look, Actually, we have a lot of regulation and licensing requirements that stop people from starting their own business and starting their own uh, enterprise, even if it's a side hustle or a main job. And so that's one thing that's holding people back. We've got minimum wage laws. We've got all kinds of things that are impacting people. And so the the Austro-Libertarian answer would be something like get rid of all the market regulation, get rid of licensing laws, allow full market competition, and of course, get rid of legal tender laws. Right, and so. Instead of the UBI, and instead of this idea that everyone has to be placated with a bit of uh, stimmy check money, it would instead be, we would be living in a world of growth deflation, meaning the cost of the things that we buy is coming down over time, instead of what we have right now, which is actually the world the Keynesians created. What we're living in is the Keynesian world. They made this problem. So the Keynesians are the ones who made it so that it was hard to afford housing. The Keynesians are the ones who made it so that people are struggling to make ends meet to begin with. The cost of the things that we have right now is artificially higher than it would be in an actual free market. And we can see that because if you look at, and this is, I mean, you mentioned Jeff Booth and the um, his book, The Price of Tomorrow. And in, in some ways, I look at his book as like a, I mean, it's a great book. I think it's like a pop econ book that helps people understand in a way 
a lot of the insights that the Austrians had been talking about for decades, literally for decades, people like Joseph Salerno, Murray Rothbard, Guido Hulsman, people like that had been writing about similar ideas, but maybe just not in as uh, pop-appealing way as Jeff Booth. And so the way I see it, if we lived on a Bitcoin standard, the cost of things would be coming down over time, making everything more accessible for everyone, basically. Because I think people get into this mindset of like zero sum, right? Oh, the rich guy, he's got his yacht and his whatever he's got. Whereas when you're a free market libertarian, you're thinking of it more like, no, actually, this rich guy with his yacht, he's not impacting my ability to live my life. I can still live my life. I can still have all of these incredible things and access to better uh, you know, technology and things that make my life better. It, this rich guy is not impacting me. But if instead we all collaborated and created a, an actual free market, the cost of these things would come down a lot in the same way that you know, Elon made that same argument around Tesla, right? The idea that, okay, the first few Teslas or whatever would be only for the rich, and then over time, he was going to make it mass production. And that's the same thing with almost any technology, that often it starts out being accessible only to the rich. And then over time, as entrepreneurs find ways to get the cost down and get that provided for the masses. And so that's a common trend we see in many, many industries. So I see it like the UBI option is simply not a sustainable way to go about this at all. I think the UBI option is just simply trying to stave off uh, the collapse of the system in this way. And so that's why they're just trying to keep it. That, like Basically, put in simple terms, the central banks and the governments and the politicians of the world are trying to keep the party going as long as they can because they don't want the party to collapse on their watch. They would rather kick the can down the road and let the next guy take the fall. In simple terms, that's what they're doing. And so I view Bitcoin and this whole idea of moving to a Bitcoin hard money, sound money standard as the honest fix. We're saying, look, we need to take accountability. Governments all around the world have gone into massive, massive debt. They cannot afford, they can't, they, they're not going to honestly repay that debt. They will basically dishonestly repay that debt by printing, by the printer. So they will end up inflating that money away and of course you know superficially you might think oh that's good look my my mortgage my home is the loan let's say whatever you did it for 500k and then over time your home is now worth 2 million but your loan is still only 500k and let's say over time hopefully your salary has risen over time just to account for the inflation or you've hopped jobs a few times or whatever such that that loan is getting devalued over time and that's basically what happened for a lot of people but eventually you reach a breaking point where the multiples are just too high or too crazy. So looking back in, say, the 70s or the 80s, that generation above me, like I'm 33, so that generation above me had access to be able to, you know, yeah, they had higher interest rates, but the property prices weren't so crazy then. Whereas now, people in my generation and like the non-Bitcoiners out there, they, they, they're all like, yeah, I need to get the mortgage, I need to get a home, but that home is... 10 times, 15 times their annual salary, 20 times their annual salary. So it's just not feasible for them. So I think we have to really zoom out and look at what did the Keynesians cause? What did they bring onto our world, all around the world? And why would the Austrian answer 
of a hard money or sound money world, why would that be better? Why would we why would we why would living in a growth deflationary world be better? Yeah, I, I definitely agree it would be better. Yeah, thank and thank you for that that explanation. I mean that that really helped helped me um, get a grasp on this. Um, I, I'm just I'm just concerned about the flipping process. Like, you know, it we all agree that hey, this would be great, but you know, in the process of of getting to that, like the old system and the and a new system, they're going to coexist for a moment in time. And during that moment in time. I'm seeing, like, I'm just kind of seeing a lot of people, you know, doing without, um, you know, whenever to bring prices down on certain things, it actually requires, uh, that requires labor that, that requires, that actually, you know, disposes of jobs. However, like some things like housing, that's a whole different story. So housing prices for that to have a you know, to deflate down to a common level where everyone can afford housing, that's, that's, we're talking about a depression. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about asset prices or at least a, a severe recession, kind of like what we had in 2000, uh, you know, 2008, 2009. So, you know, that, that process, I don't think it's going to be a, a rosy process. I think the outcome is, is what we desire, but is there a way to make it a rosy process? Is there a way to make it a peaceful transition that isn't so, oh, wow, my my, my house is worth uh, 25% of what it was in 2020, for instance. Like, are we going to be looking at that in 10 years from now? Yeah, so this is a hard part. I don't know how easy or hard the transition will be. There, there are factors going either way. One factor, and... I believe Safety has been popularized this and spoke about this idea on my show a couple of times. I think episode 69 of my show, actually, he mentioned this. So if you're interested, you can listen to that. But one way to think about it is part of the Keynesian system is that every time a new loan is issued, that's new money being created. And so every time banks are making a loan out, they're making new money. But what he was saying is there might actually be a, a counter factor here because when now look let's put it this way like i just want to back up and put the right context here it's not like it's not like bitcoin made this problem the keynesians made this problem bitcoin is just part of how people are giving themselves a way out right so if if bad things are happening as we change out of it it's like it's like the equivalent of you know or the at the risk of uh, uh, triggering people, I'm going to use an analogy I've heard Peter Schiff use. He's actually used this analogy that it's like the patient is like this drug addict, and the central banks and the governments of the world are almost like the people just drug pushers. So yeah, keep taking drugs. Don't worry. I don't. You don't need to go to rehab. Just keep taking. Just keep taking the drug. But at some point, the world has to just stop. Has to kick the drug. We've got to kick the habit. We need to just get off the drug of fiat. And so it's like it, there's there's some ways in which this transition will just necessarily be painful, right? There's just no other way about it. Like we didn't get ourselves into this position um, by uh, like quickly. So it's not, it's, it's, it's going to take time. It's like, you know, an analogy is like, let's say someone got really, really, really fat, right? It's like, cause they were eating badly, bad diet, bad exercise, you know, and they want to, and they're like complaining that they're not losing weight quickly enough. Well, I'm sorry, man. Like you didn't, it's not like you got fat really quickly. Like you have to, you're going to have to take that time. 
eat right and exercise to get back down to healthy weight. And it's a similar thing. Like the global economy has gone uh, very distorted because of all the fiat. So I just I just don't see an easy way back. Um, so I think, yeah. So let me summarize. So in one way, you could say it's just Bitcoin is just giving people an option. It's giving people a way out for for the people who adopt it. Uh, but the the downside of that is the people who are uh, kind of leaving leaving it later to get into Bitcoin, they might perceive a loss in their relative wealth compared to other people. Uh, but I, I do I do fundamentally see it like the world is just going to be so much richer. Um, so I do believe we're all going to be better off, right? For, I think it makes sense for everyone. It is a positive sum game. It makes sense for everyone to get into this thing. Um, but there will be a, a rearranging of the uh, uh, of the how would I put it? A rearranging of the order, if you will, based on people who are faster to understand that Bitcoin is what you should be stacking. Oh, sorry, just to, uh, one other point I wanted to actually make. So that point that I was talking about with safety in on episode, I think, 69 of my show, he was making that point that actually, over time, we might just see less demand for credit. So there might be a gentle sort of transition factor in that. So maybe that's a, a bit of a silver lining idea there uh, in that there. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check out that episode. Thanks for that. I think everybody wants the peaceful transition <clears throat> and um, to do whatever we can. I mean, part of that is basically spreading the word Bitcoining, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Bitcoining, orange pilling the other 7 billion people on the planet. Um, I think that's the mission. That's my mission every single day. But aside from that, if you're in America, um, I'm just going to say don't give up your guns no matter what <laughs> and leave it at that. Last place on the planet where the people can stand up, right? We got to we got to hold on to those, no matter what, no matter what, guys. All right, so uh, we've got Stefan Lavera here as a special guest today. If you're in the audience and you have questions, you want to ask the question, you want to come up, add to the discussion, let us know. We'll bring you up. We're talking about Bitcoin is the pathway to freedom, the peaceful pathway to freedom, and uh, we are going to uh, continue to do these shows every single day monday through friday starting at 7 a.m pacific and uh hopefully always have great conversations about where this is going stefan what's next uh on the world tour for you where are you headed next so yeah so i am in austin right now but tomorrow i'm flying to the uh the one with jimmy song so basically we're doing uh a drinks thing so that'll be tomorrow at uh we've got uh, an event bright i can um tweet that out if people are interested i tweeted it out a little while back but i can retweet that as well for anyone who's in town um so i'll be there with jimmy and then after that i'll be in chicago uh we i don't think we've finalized our guests for that but at this point it'll be me and jan pritzker um and then uh i'll be in miami uh, and then after that, I'll be in El Salvador uh, for a few, well, just basically like a week for the two um, Bitcoin conferences down there. Um, 
And then after that, it'll be back to Sri Lanka for a little bit. So I'll hang out there and then um, we'll see what happens probably early next year. It might be uh, back out traveling, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's kind of up in the air at this point. All right, awesome. If uh, you have a tweet out there for that, Humble, if you see that, could you nest it so everybody can see that if they want to uh, get more information on that? Go ahead, Michael. I was just want to say uh, code Lavera for the event in Atlanta. Uh, Stefan, for either Bitcoin or Fiat works. So code Lavera, all caps, for uh, the Atlanta Bitcoin conference. Yeah, so TabConf, yeah. What's the website for that? I think it's tabconf.com is the website for that. Yeah, dot com. yeah. Very good. Uh, good morning, Monty BTC. How are you doing? Monty BTC, if you've got something to add, if you have a question or something like that, you have to unmute yourself. Go ahead. Hey, Alex, uh, while he's figuring out his mic, I just want to take a moment. You know, seems like I have a pretty large audience. So one of your regular listeners and frequent contributors, Captain Boomer, I uh, noticed a name change there. You guys know how much I love it. It uh, looks like he's been recently promoted to general. You know, I just see it's great to see great things happen to good people. So congratulations, uh, General Boomer, on your recent promotion. Here's Stephanie Lawrence. Yeah, Alex actually took note of that this morning. And we invited him up, but uh, didn't get to hear from them on that promotion. So we'll have to stay tuned. All right. So uh, we're going to move on from Monty. If he, if he's, uh, we'll leave him up here for a minute, see if he can figure it out. But uh, our next uh, person that we just brought up is Nikolai. Good morning, Nikolai. How are you doing? Uh, <clears throat> doing great today. Um, how are you guys doing? And uh, th thanks for putting on the show. I wanted to ask uh, Stefan about jurisdiction, jurisdictions that he thinks are, are uniquely favorable. Um, you, you know, you have um, Katie the Russian, who is uh, a, a, an expert at consulting on the citizen by investment programs around the world, uh, in particular in the Caribbean and some European nations some South Pacific. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to know, you know, where, where could you, you know, if you had the means and you could buy a second passport, wh what's the optimum place? Where do you go? Um, and that's my question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something I've been looking at, obviously. Um, so I can definitely speak a bit generally to it. I don't want to obviously dox my own aspect, but definitely happy to talk about it. I think Obviously, some of the Caribbean islands are an option there. So there's some that are like cheaper and maybe they've got a low level of tax. And then there's others that may be a little bit more expensive, but they've got zero tax and zero capital gains tax, which is obviously uh, appealing. Um, obviously, then you have to think about that. If you're an American, then you have to think about the citizenship aspect of it. So you might just be thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'll just want like a plan B. I just want somewhere else that I could go to if I needed to. Um, that's one way to think about it. Um, otherwise, there are other places out there in the world that might be feasible for us. Places like, obviously, El Salvador, obviously offering the three Bitcoin um, permanent residence plan. Now, I don't think the details for that are out there yet, but 
that's something you you could consider, you could look at. And obviously it would be cool to be able to live in El Salvador and just spend everything in sats and receive in sats and all that. So that would obviously be an appealing um, possibility for a Bitcoin person like us. Um, What else is out there? I think Dubai is an interesting one as well. So I was recently in Dubai and that was the first time I went and I thought, wow, it was actually really cool in a few ways. Like, Obviously, every place has its downsides and trade-offs, right? But Dubai has zero tax, uh, and you can set up there as a business if you want. And I, you know, I, it's like very high quality of living and things like that. That's an option. Um, there are places even in South America that are like were rel- they, they they were relatively open. Or places like Colombia, as an example. Uh, although, depending on when you went. Um, relatively open. Some of these places, like you could get like a residence um, permit there or residence pass there. Um, I know people are doing stuff like Panama or Paraguay as well, places that are feasible to get a, a residence permit. And that might be like an easier way than shelling out the money for a full citizenship. You could sort of stepping stone it and start with that kind of thing. Um, so uh, you ha- you have to think about a whole bunch of things though, because there might be trade-offs that you have to make based on where you go is if it's a poorer country, you might be making trade-offs about what kind of services are available there, what kind of products are available there. Um, but at the same time, you could think of it like I, I recently visited Colombia and I was really impressed at like going to the, um, some of the restaurants in Medellin and it was incredible. Like we were paying, I was with some Bitcoin people, right? And we were paying maybe $15, $20 for an incredible steak. Like that same steak here in America would cost you probably $100. So it, it, like, so you can really uh, take the best of what's out there if there's certain, you know, trade-offs that you're okay with, right? Now, as an example, in, in Colombia, you would have to, you probably have to learn Spanish, right? I was lucky. I kind of just didn't know any, but I kind of had some friends around, so I kind of leaned on them. But there are all these ways where if you're willing to be open-minded, you can find good deals out there. Um, Mexico might be another one where they're relatively less, you know, hysterical, and so might be something to worth, you know, be worth thinking about as well. So you know, there's all kinds of options out there. Um, maybe even uh, I know Georgia is relatively easy to get a like a residence or like you can stay there for like a year basically. Uh, most people or at least many of us can do that. So, I mean, there's different options out there um, in terms of countries. So, I mean, there, there are a few that you could think about. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, a, uh, as you discuss, a kind of a complex mix of, um, you know, where you're at personally in your life and what kind of place you live, you, you, know, you know, what kind of environment you like and, and um, language. And then, um, and then, uh, then the sort of objective measures around freedom and taxation, and um, it's uh, you know I've been thinking a lot about it, and I definitely have not solved the riddle. And one other point I could add as well is, I think it might be, it might be uh, an example is you could you could test the waters in a way by trying out some of these countries that are offering digital nomad visas. So there are some out there like there's, if you just search digital nomad visa, now you'll see a bunch of them are now getting into this idea and even places that previously had digital nomad communities are now sort of starting to just openly call it a digital nomad visa because 
from their point of view, they want you to go there and spend your money there. They, they, you know, you'll be treated well there. So it's not a perfect answer because it might not be the whole answer. Maybe that digital nomad visa is only for one year or two years, but it might be something to try an experiment. And then while you're there, then you can figure out, okay, what's next? What's the next step? Am I going to try and take it up a notch and get a residence right here or go for citizenship here? Or maybe that's not the right call. Maybe I'm going to try somewhere else. Maybe that other place will be more my speed. So I think there are different ways to try it out in a way that are low investment. Like you don't necessarily have to go and like buy a citizenship to, to go. You can just visit and try it first. Try it before you buy, right? Yeah, no, I've heard Switzerland has uh, favorable laws and then Estonia has uh, supposedly like real, uh, you know, blockchain, Bitcoin friendly um, laws. Yeah, and I mean, I know people talk about Portugal. Um, that's an example. I think British Hoddle just gave me a DM about them. But like Portugal is another example where they've got, I think, no capital gains tax. Um, although I would be cautious with Portugal, reason being, I don't think their policy around zero capital gains tax for Bitcoin stuff is in, like in, like an intentional thing. I think it's kind of like a, it's like the way the law is written and they just haven't gone to close that out. And who knows, they could close that in the future. So you sort of have to be a bit wary. But I know Lisbon is like a digital nomad hotspot. So, you know, th there's pros and cons there. Yeah. One of the things that Katie the Russian said is that um, residency, with, if, if you, we get in a scenario where it gets a little crazy and the, the statist and the, you know, Marxists really want to tax us heavily, um, in the past, governments um, exert capital controls. And it's difficult to move your money, uh, and it's maybe difficult to physically leave. Uh, now, Bitcoin solves the, the, the with, with sovereignty, you know, self-sovereignty with Bitcoin, you can always move the asset uh, or have a voting accident. Um, but it, when this moment when maybe you want to actually get in a plane and, and go somewhere, um, that could be a little tricky. And actually having a, a passport for a second country affords you um, rights that uh, it's difficult to be, unless you're a criminal and there's a specific charge leveled against you, um, it's difficult to stop you. From, uh, it's, it's difficult for a government to stop a foreign national from traveling unless there's a specific charge. So that's why the passport, that's what Katie says, the passport itself is superior in that scenario versus just a residency permit. Right, yeah, citizenship gets you more rights, the passport gets you more rights in certain ways, but it could also bring more obligations too, so you have to think about that too from a tax point of view. So yeah, definitely it's it's kind of one of those things where you have to balance all of these different little factors. You might be thinking, okay, uh, where could I, where would be easier for me to bring my family, right? Or maybe where, where's the healthcare better or where's the services better? So yeah, you kind of have to balance across all of these different things to make it work. But I think for people who are open and a bit more open-minded, I think it's, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. It seems like an important, um, a, a tool for the population to, to vote with our feet. Right. And if the if the if the, um, the politicians know that they can't stop millions of people from seeking a, a freer alternative, then maybe they'll be more accommodative politically. Uh, maybe not. But 
So it, I just find it, um, I think about it and I'm, I've investigated it, but I, I will admit that I, I, know, I don't have any idea what to do or how to solve this riddle and I'm still working on it. Nikolai, thanks for uh, for popping up and, and asking your questions. This has been a really good uh, subject of discussion. I've, I've done the expat thing myself as well. Stefan is an expat right now, basically. He's uh, Australian, traveling around the West right now. Um, there's I lived down in Panama, Central America for 11 years. And there's a lot of considerations, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that go, go into it. So um, something to, to think through. Uh, Monty, good morning. Did you figure out your microphone? Did you want to say something? Yeah, hey guys, how we doing? Doing well. Hello. That's good, that's good. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've just come back from Australia after four years and I'm from Ireland. Um, and kind of the response to what's going on in the world has kind of concerned me, obviously, um, with Australia being uh, uh, one of the newest countries and kind of characterized by kind of masculinity and freedom and all this. Um, it seems like they've complied really quickly. And it seems to be the exact same here in Ireland. There's very, very few people kind of questioning the state or questioning what's going on in the world or anything like that. Um, and I was just curious with, with, with Bitcoin and with hyper Bitcoinization and everything like that. Um, is the network of, do you guys think that the network effect is enough to, to combat that? That kind of, I suppose, disillusion in, in, in certain states and in, like, for example, in my country, it is the vast majority, it seems to be. Um, and if so, like, like I, I could see like countries opting out first. Um, which obviously would 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 see other countries remain in fiat and in the fiat system, and I could see countries opting out being vilified and even even attacked for for this kind of opting out. I was just wondering how you guys saw that playing out. Um, is it just a question of time? Is it just the network effect will kind of will kind of see that dissipate, or, or what? Do you so think? when you say countries like getting for acting out, do you mean like if a country comes out supporting Bitcoin or legal tender Bitcoin that they would get attacked for that or i'm not clear what you mean yeah kind of vilified and possibly attacked yeah yeah so i mean it's well i mean anything's possible but i just think the more likely scenario is more and more countries and people just waking up on their own and pushing for it either as a legal tender or just holding it as savings technology right bitcoin is savings technology and so there's more and more people who are living in high inflation environments and they're just looking for a way out and i think because more and more people will have, by their own incentive, will be holding Bitcoin. Then politicians and governments will have to do, will have to follow suit. And I think uh, the first few might be the ones who take the heat for it. It was just like El Salvador initially took a bit of heat from the IMF, uh, but I think now other people will just it'll it won't be that hard for them because like El Salvador already took the heat for them, you know. Yeah, fair. Um, and just on the subject, there, the the group is called um, or the the space is Bitcoin is freedom. Um, I've been involved for maybe two or three years now, and it's only just starting to feel like freedom. So I'm just curious: would you guys have any advice or recommendations to people just getting into Bitcoin that might be kind of afraid and uh, what's happening in the world, and there's a sense of urgency, um, or is it just kind of stack sets and and 
be patient. I think part of it, yeah, look, part of it is just stack stats and be patient, but there are ways to contribute, right? You can get involved in your local scene, right? Start a Bitcoin meetup, or if you have a local Bitcoin meetup already, get involved with that. Uh, go work in a Bitcoin company or contribute in some way. If you can yeah. contribute in a Bitcoin project, that can also make you feel like you're really part of this, right? If you're working for BTC Pay Server or you're contributing code in some way or you're reviewing pull requests on Bitcoin Core, if you can do that, uh, there are different ways to, I guess, get involved. Um, but certainly part of part of Bitcoin is, I think, being patient. It's just being really, uh, yeah, just having that patience of stacking and just sort of looking at the long term. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, Thanks Dave. Thanks, Okay, good morning to Harvard Huddle. How are you? Hey, all good here. Um, kind of going a different direction than the last couple of questions. Um, my interest initially in getting into Bitcoin was to accumulate property that I could use as collateral against loans with the intention of ultimately buying businesses that generate cash flow and stacking more, kind of having a, um, a, a precious cycle of, of cash or property um, generation that, that helps me contribute to my stack. So um, I, I've been in the Bitcoin Twitter space contributing with that intention and i come up against opinions that, that you know putting your bitcoin at risk for for any purpose is is really stupid and you should just be a, a bitcoin maxi to the end um stefan how do you process you know what unchained capital is doing um you know using your bitcoin to advance productivity in your local communities versus this just buy hold forever and don't risk it strategy that a lot of the vocal parts of the community are espousing on Twitter. There is a middle ground, right? And now to be clear, Unchained Capital are a sponsor of my podcast. So, you know, uh, I have an interest in that. And I also have a very small investment um, uh, in Unchained Capital as well as part of Bitcoin Adventures. So just disclosures put out there, right? So everyone knows. I believe there is a way to do it. I personally uh, so without doxing too much, I do use an unchained loan myself. Um, I, but the way here's how I think about it. I think of it like, don't be irresponsible, basically. So meaning only use a small or, you know, a relatively small portion of your overall stack. Make sure you have income that you can use to pay down that loan. Be ideally using that loan for something that, now, now some people use, will use those loans to to get mining equipment, Bitcoin mining equipment, and then stack stats that way. And as an example, you might even think of it like, "Hey, I'm going to stack some non KYC stats, right?" So uh, that's another example um, where you can um, kind of play that game. But I think I've done various episodes on this. I did an episode with Parker Lewis talking about it. Uh, Dan Held, I did an episode with him on. So I did an episode with Andy Edstrom as well. So if you check out uh, in my recent catalog, I think it's um, I think the episode title was something like "Don't Get Wrecked," right? So basically, we were talking through like what are some of the scenarios and things. So as an example, the price could drop really quickly. You could get liquidated. You could have you know there could be an issue with that provider. Um, you know th there are risks. It's not risk free, but I think if you are conservative about it, 
you can use it in a way productive or helping you uh, in some life goal of yours or helping you. So from my point of view, it was something uh, that I wanted to get that without having to obviously give up the SaaS for it right now. And um, if you had to pay otherwise capital gains tax for selling or spending those coins, uh, but instead, if you're using a loan, well, then that helps you from that tax point of view. So instead of, I don't know, I, I'm just picking numbers like this is not what I use for my loan, but just as an example, let's say the thing you want or roughly that it's that cost today. So call it, you know, 62,000 or whatever we're at today. But the idea is you're taking out this loan and then you're just going to, you're just going to plan to keep rolling it over and instead of paying one Bitcoin today or maybe even 1.2 Bitcoin today because you, you, you've got to account for capital gains taxes, you might only be paying 0.1 Bitcoin 10 years from now or 0.01, 0.05 Bitcoin five, year, five or 10 years from now because just the number has gone up that much. So certainly there's an opportunity. And so you have to think about that and think, okay, well, okay, what's this opportunity versus what is the risk, right? Now, the downside risk is, as I spoke out, spoke about on that episode with Dan Held, where during the March 2020 crash, a lot of people who were leave it up were in a lot of trouble at that point because they were close to getting liquidated and some people did get liquidated. So I think you just have to balance that and think of it like, don't be irresponsible. That's the main thing is use a small portion of your stack if you're looking to do these collateralized loans. And ideally, if you've got income that you're using to then pay down that loan, and over time, if you're paying down the principal, you're bringing down that uh, the size of that loan and also making it less likely that you're going to get liquidated out if, let's say, there's, there were to be a big price drop. So that's, that's an example of how I would think about it. Um, and then, of course, you want to think about, well, what's the interest rate you're paying as well? Does that save you in terms of the, the cost there? Um, so those are a few thoughts there. And I see Lynn has just joined us. Welcome, Lynn. Hey, he's dropping in. Awesome. Um, hey, can yeah. I can I ask one follow-up question? Sure, sure. And I'm not sure if you have experience in this space, but from a SBA loan, um, looking at Bitcoin loans as uh, the equity position that they would be willing to borrow against does anybody on this panel have any insights or is there any good resources that you know that i could go do some more research on how sba uh, office is looking at crypto specifically collateralized loans um, sorry I, I don't have any small business loan experience myself maybe someone else on the panel does If not, that would just be really interesting to understand the interplay because I, I, Stefan, what you were saying about basically applying the loans to productive uses, I think is really important and, you know, being prudent, kind of treating it as a, a value investor mindset instead of a growth investor mindset when using those loans, it really resonates with me. But then a lot of these smaller uh, business applications, you know, I think they'll finance a acquisition of a company up to like. $10 million or something like that through SBA channels. It'd just be interesting to know what the U.S. government is doing with crypto because um, it could be yeah. pretty powerful if it's favorable. Yeah, and I think part of it is also what interest rate are you paying on that loan, right? So what we're seeing in 
in the fiat world is, oh, look how ridiculously cheap those loans are. Therefore, they can go out and, you know, leverage up and buy out a competitor and things like this is what businesses are doing in the fiat world. Whereas those of us in the Bitcoin world using like a Bitcoin loan, as an example with Unchained, the, the, the rates are a bit higher, right? So you can't, you're not necessarily going crazy with it. It's more just like, how can I unlock a small portion of my stack? Let's say I want to get some miners. You know, let's say I want to go to Compass Mining as an example, right? Like that's that's an example, right? You can sort of take out a small loan, and you're, the idea is you're earning some Sats, and you're just using your fiat now to pay off that loan uh, while earning some Sats. So, I mean, that's how I how I think about it. All right, very good. So we're going to keep rotating speakers up here. Uh, good morning to everybody who's joining us. Or welcome to Bitcoin Breakfast Club. We've got some special guests in the room today. We've got Stefan Levera, and the topic that we're discussing today is Bitcoin is freedom. Also, Lynn Alden just joined us. Welcome, Lynn. Um, we have Abby uh, Doble has just come up. Good morning, Abby. Oh, or not. <laughs> yeah, he shows his listener for me now. All right, maybe he didn't actually mean to come up. Lynn, what's going on in your world? Mostly focusing on macro at the moment. I uh, just put out research for private clients, had a big Bitcoin section. Um, I didn't catch the the intro part of what you guys are talking about, but I, I heard that you guys are talking about the collateralized loans. So I actually had a big segment on what NYDIG is doing there um, with that car dealership. And I was kind of discussing that. One thing is like NYDIG um, has always been so far pretty conservative in the space when it comes to complying with the law and stuff. So the fact that they're getting into that space pretty heavily is interesting. Um, and so I, I find that one of the more interesting things about this whole cycle because, you know, I've been seeing a lot of posts lately about how the four-year, you know, historical Bitcoin cycle is probably going to look different going forward. And that's something I generally agree with in part because of the financing that we're seeing in the space, both for, for miners, right? So miners are selling fewer of their coins or in some cases, none of their coins and even in a few cases, they've done open market buys to get more coins. So they're kind of using like the sailor financing approach. Um, and then you see large holders also able to finance their coins, uh, you know, a small part of their stack rather than spend their coins, um, you know, with, with you know, NYDIG, Unchained Capital uh, and these other types of entities. And so I think that's um, an interesting development. Uh, obviously, I wouldn't want to see leverage in the space get too high. Uh, but it's one of those things where when you see a market go from basically not being financialized at all to having that become more available, uh, that's pretty important for the ecosystem around the margins. And so that is a topic that I've been interested in lately. Yeah, I really like that angle. I think it's really cool that um, in the same way, you, you make a great point that historically miners had to sell down some of their coins to pay their expenses. But then as this industry and ecosystem is growing up and maturing, now some of them can finance. and so. Yeah, that is a really interesting thing to think about, and like what a, you know to really think through the implications of that for future bear and bull cycles in Bitcoin. It might not be a four-year cycle. Who knows? Yeah, because I mean, in addition to just the the new supply being a smaller percent of the existing market cap, and you know, there's also basically as as Willie Wu pointed out, there are other sources of kind of natural selling pressure now. But then when you when you overlay that with the additional, you know, the financing, the lower cost of capital that miners have, the, you know, 
reasonable lending, I mean, uh, yeah, borrowing sources that uh, holders have. Um, I, I think that really changed the dynamics going forward. And basically, people are kind of glued to the four-year cycle, even though the sample size is like three now. And, you know, going forward, I think it could look somewhat different. I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll see as time goes by, we'll have to collect more information. Uh, but I think a lot of people are kind of locked into that four-year cycle mindset. And I think that's it's, it's going to throw people curveballs. When, when almost everybody thinks one thing's going to happen, it's almost certainly that something else is going to happen. Yeah, I'll tell I you what. Right. Oh, sorry, Corey, Corey, you go Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, uh, there was a crazy top in 2011. There was a two-year cycle from inception through 2011. Then there was another cycle from 11 to 13. And from 13 to 17, that's one time we've seen a four-year cycle. And we don't know how long this one is going to be. So we'll, we'll see. It remains to be seen. I, I did actually have a question. Maybe you guys can explain it with the right, <laughs> the right verbiage. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about when... So you obviously today we've got the market where you can post the Bitcoin as collateral. They have the keys. They can liquidate you anytime. And that's, you know, at a fairly high rate, right? That's like, you know, 10% to retail, maybe 7.5% to institutional, something like that. And we all expect that rate to come way, way down over time when you're actually posting the collateral because it's basically, you know, it is actually risk-free and you're selling in a 24-7 liquid market. So naturally that should be something like 1% or 2%, not 10 but the other thing I hear a lot of people talk about is like at some point, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are going to just be wealthy. They're going to be able to prove that they have assets, including lots of Bitcoin. And they're going to be able to get like personal non-recourse loans, just like the owner of the Patriots or the owner of a Manhattan apartment building. Uh, is non-recourse loan first the, the right term for that? And then also like what steps need to take place for that to develop? And over what kind of time frame would you expect that market to develop? That's a question for Len or Stefan. Okay, I'll hop in there. Yeah, I don't know exactly how long that'll take to develop, obviously. I, so my general trend that I'm looking for is I do think that, that those types of collateralized loans, the gap between those and the other interest rates we see in the economy, kind of the, the fiat economy, uh, I think that gap will close um, partially. So like basically Bitcoin financing should continue to improve from here. Um, and you know, from what I understand of these loans, most of them, like, unlike, unlike the DeFi out there, these are non-automated. So, you know, basically they have a little bit less liquidation risk when there's kind of a flash crash, um, cause there's a human decision that can basically reach out to accounts and see if they want to add additional collateral, um, you know, especially for large accounts. And so it, it's, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things that probably still has a pretty good amount of growth ahead of it. Um, I do think over time, you basically, you can just basically prove that you have a certain amount of coins and that should be sufficient for a loan. Um, I think you can obviously then have different interest rates based on if someone's willing to actually hand over those coins. Uh, because one thing that's hard to prove is that you haven't like rehypothecated your assets. So for example, if you have a certain Bitcoin stack, you could take out a loan from multiple different lenders um and kind of pledge they kind of pledge the same collateral because you're not posting it with them uh now obviously they have ways to check that um but it's hard you know they they can't check everything and so i think there will be a you know kind of a discount for that more custodial collateralized approach 
but yeah, over time, you'd expect to see as this industry develops, you'd expect to see a, a, a broader array of different types of products available for people that have different use cases. And so I'm, I'm like, I would expect Nidig, for example, to eventually, you know, make it to every market that makes sense for them. Yeah, I, I think um, I think Lynn makes a lot of great points there. I, I do think over time it'll like the rates will come down and they'll offer a, a range of different options. Like I think one thing that a lot of people are keen on is this whole idea, maybe more like a retail product, is like to have a credit card that you can put, you know, Bitcoin as collateral and use that to borrow against, and so therefore you can uh, partake in the. Uh, Pierre Rashadian uh, speculative attack every day on your with your everyday expenses. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that, and I'm also curious as well. Um, uh, we're talking about non-recourse debt, or is it what's the, I've heard the term uh, callable? Like, is your is it a callable um, callable debt or not callable? So uh, I guess that is that also what we're talking about here. So I would I I would describe it as collateralized uh, versus non-collateralized um, yeah. or custodied. And so with, with basically, like when a company does non-recourse, they can, for example, have a subsidiary um, and if that subsidiary, for whatever reason, can't pay, pay its liabilities, um, the creditors can't go up to the parent organization. Uh, there's basically like a, a hard wall there between them. Um, from what I understand of the, of the loans from talking to people in the industry and maybe different shops are different, um, but if, if, for example, your posted Bitcoin collateral ends up being somehow insufficient to pay the liability, like let's say Bitcoin crashes 80% very quickly, they're unable to liquidate fast enough. And for whatever reason, the, the lender is stuck with a, a partial loss. Um, I don't think they have the ability to, to then, you know, basically go after the borrower. But of course, it would depend on, on the, the, how the, you know, the documents were signed. But I think basically as, as it's currently structured, that collateral is the the limit of their their resource. At least from what I've been from what I've been told, I haven't studied the contracts because I I personally don't have any of those loans. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean one part is I think you're right that they would give a preference for where they are able to custody, or at least like in the unchanged style where they hold they hold one key, the independent third party key agent, and then you might hold one key, so you don't have full custody. You just have one out of three keys in that model. Um, so that's maybe one way it, it could happen. And so that might be a very common thing. The interest with their fiat income, if they have it, um, and use that method instead so um i do want to point out that it, it depends on what the loan is being used for if it's being used to purchase a performing asset where you're generating enough income to cover the interest or whatever over time i believe uh the you know the underwriting for that is much much more easier but for right now because the collateral is just bitcoin and the zero underwriting is essentially the interest rates are high but once the, they go down uh i do I think there's a path for someone like SBN all to uh, guarantee those loans. They will still come with a personal guarantee. But the way I imagine this would work is you would actually have another third party 
that is providing liquidity and they might get a cut of uh, whatever uh, the transaction is. But at the end, you know, the Bitcoin owners don't want to get liquidated. So short term, there's got to be a liquidity providers helping them hedge the, uh, the little bit of volatility. All right. Uh, we have a couple of new speakers up here. Good morning. Uh, good morning, General Boomer. How are you doing? Did you have a question or something you wanted to add? I do. And uh, thanks for having me up today. Um, just kind of con continuing on with that last part of the conversation there. One of the thoughts that I've had, and I'm actually a former banker um, of 10, 15 years, and that was back in 2005 when I left the industry. But uh, one of the thoughts I've had is if there could be almost like a, uh, a temporary stopgap measure for folks that do want to pledge their Bitcoin, but are fearful of liquidation, if the intent is to use the monies that are being lent to you with your Bitcoin as collateral, if you're going to use a simple example of, say, a home purchase, um, I wonder if folks, say, like an Unchained Capital or a Swan, if they ever get into that of the lending market, if if you would look at taking that asset as collateral to help mitigate the liquidation risk if Bitcoin would drop. So, you know, I just wonder if that's a potential stopgap solution in the interim while while things are being developed. I'd um, love to hear the panel's thoughts on that. Um, my two cents is that's a pretty complicated offering and it's already a pretty small market that's taken time to develop. So my guess is we get to better interest rates before that is required. That would be my guess. I agree. And, and from what I understand, when there are large loans involved, like a, a business that's doing this process or a very, very large customer, the the some in some cases like NIDIG, the lender will know, you know, the the client pretty well. And that can shape how much time, for example, they give them to you know, post additional collateral or otherwise, uh, if, if there would otherwise be a liquidation. So I think in the meantime, that's one of the stop gaps is essentially that client relationship rather than that automatic, you know, DeFi kind of automatic liquidation approach um, is, is I think, one of the important parts of the industry. Because you can, if you know that the client has tremendous other assets and then it's just a, a short term timing issue. Uh, and they're a large client that there's, you know, there's a willingness to work with that because the lender doesn't want to, you know, liquidate the client either if they can help it. Yeah. Just as an easy example, like uh, rates we could get for Swan are about three percentage points lower than I can get personally. Yeah, it makes sense. And probably also like, you know, if, if for whatever reason there's that huge liquidation, obviously that lender would be, you know, they know you have other assets. They'd be more willing to, you know, give you time to avoid liquidation. Whereas if you're a small client that they don't know very well, or those people using those automated approaches, then you just you risk just getting liquidated on, you know, one of those kind of like low liquid, like low liquidity kind of weird Bitcoin spikes that can happen from time to time. All right, so we have a pretty interesting question that's coming through DMs. So um, we're going to ask that here in just a second. Very quickly, just want to welcome everybody in. 
Um, we've been having this discussion this morning that, that started out with Stefan Lavered. Lynn Alden jumped into the room and we had this really in-depth, cool discussion about uh, lending and how that might all play out in the ecosystem. Sovereign popped in here. I don't know if you had a question, Sovereign, or something you wanted to add. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, Lynn, just want to get your thoughts on the possibility or probability uh, of the Lightning Network uh, becoming uh, a Bitcoin locked up there, becoming a new uh, risk-free rate of capital in the future. Yes, I've seen that proposed. Right now, Lightning is still a small part of the network in terms of the assets locked, um, and most most of the my understanding is that most of the participants are not really earning kind of a meaningful yield there are a couple you know kind of super performers that are really good at building channels and that the long tail of people generally are not earning a yield i've seen the argument over time that that in theory that should be the risk-free rate because it's basically you don't give up your custody of it um and basically you're it's the closest thing to earning a yield with with you know the closest thing to no risk um so it could be essentially the the treasury yield of the Bitcoin market, in, in a matter of speaking, I, I think the argument makes sense. I think it, it depends in part on how big Lightning gets. If Lightning becomes, and I, I'm very bullish on Lightning, um, you know, the things that are coming out of Lightning Labs and the, and the other uh, developers, uh, I'm really excited about. We've obviously seen it get, catch on this year, so I'm very bullish on Lightning. And essentially, the the bigger and more important that Lightning gets relative to the size of the Bitcoin ecosystem, I, I think that becomes closer and closer to being realistic because uh, you know right now it's a it's a small part compared to these other lending markets um whereas you can you know basically these collateralized loans when well structured are also pretty low risk um but yeah it depends how big lightning gets essentially in my view yeah and i think just to add to that uh so for people who aren't familiar nick bartia i think 2018 or 2019 i think he wrote an article and helped popularize this whole idea and so a lot of people i've interviewed him on my show multiple times and we've spoken about it um i think what's also interesting is not just the rate that people are charging in terms of like you know for me to route to you it's also the rate that they would charge in terms of opening a channel to you to have an inbound channel so as an example bit refill offer this it's called thor so that's an example where they offer that as a service and what kind of fee would that charge um would that be um but for now it seems like the only profitable um lightning now lightning node runners are it's it's maybe not a uh, it's not like all of them are making heaps of money on it it's more like a hobbyist thing where maybe the top you know, lightning nodes are making good money out of it. Um, so I think it's we're just not at that level yet that um, uh, it's like professionalized to that level. Um, but certainly, even if it starts out at like a low rate, that could, I think, and that was the argument of Nick um, back in 2018 or 19, it was that even if it was a low rate, that it could start somewhere and then other rates could be built up on top of that, given that it's a, a, a non-custodial uh relatively risk-free except for certain technical risks um right yeah i think overall what we would expect to see is that lightning would give you the lowest yield but theoretically the, the most safety and then when you get into different rates that that these you know these different kind of uh you know lenders uh earn or depositors earn you know depending on what their what their capital source is 
you'd have a spectrum depending on their size, reputation, and specialization. So if you have like a, you know, a large Bitcoin only, highly trusted, you know, uh, basically essentially a Bitcoin bank at this point, you know, like a NIDIG or an Unchained Capital, you know, you'd have lower expected rates compared to like those casino ones where they have a ton of different coins and the the people behind it are are kind of less, you know, you know, conservative in their lending approach. And so you'd expect to see that spectrum play out across the industry. All right. Uh, good morning to everybody who's joining us just now. Yasin, I know that you're up here. We're going to come to you in just a second. We've got one question coming in from DMs. We're going to start, I think, Lynn, if you want to take a shot at this, and Stefan, you can add to it if you want. The question is, um, will the ETFs create a gold-style market where paper Bitcoin dilutes and ultimately suppresses the price? I was curious about what this might do as well. Your thoughts, please? So that's that's one of the, the concerns that people have been mentioning for a while as it relates to Bitcoin. Um, the way that it's designed, Bitcoin is is more resilient to that than gold. Um, and people have covered this well, essentially, that because it's far easier to take custody of Bitcoin, the ownership is a lot more decentralized, uh, and there's less there's less of an incentive to hold, you know, these these cash only uh, derivatives. Whereas with gold, because it's hard to transport, um, and because it's hard to self custody large amounts of it safely. Um, you know, basically there's more of a uh, kind of an industry consolidation around large custodians, and then therefore it makes it easy to rehypothecate um, those assets, whereas that's harder with Bitcoin. Um, I, I do think we're seeing it around the margins. I mean, you know, the, the futures market, uh, you know, now affects uh, Bitcoin price pretty significantly compared to how it did years ago. Um, people that trade actively follow that more closely than I do. Um, so overall, I think it's it's something to monitor. It depends how big that gets relative to Bitcoin's market capitalization and trading volume. Um, but overall, uh, the technology itself is more resilient to that uh, than gold. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think that's the the fundamental answer. And I guess to add to that, you could also point out that of the call it 18.9 million bitcoins that exist out there today. Most of those are already held in someone's custody, right? That like, and yes, um, you know, the, there's millions and millions of coins that are held just by hodlers out there. So I think it would just be hard to for all those coins to now get captured inside some entity, some ETF entity that's all paper. Therefore, rehypothecating above and beyond the amount of actual coins they have in storage or for coins for which they hold the private keys, the I, I just think it's such an unlikely scenario, just given how easy it is to self-custody and how easy it is to actually change that. So I, I think it's it's definitely one of the big uh, fundamental differences between gold and Bitcoin. All right, very good. Thank you both for your for your explanation there. Um, Yasin, good morning. Welcome. Do you have a question or a thought to add here? Hey everyone, good morning. Um, so I don't uh, particularly have a question, but I did want to share something. So uh, just for context, I'm a pleb. I uh, started following all you Bitcoin only folks about two years ago. And then after attending the conference uh, in Miami and the Oslo Freedom Forums, 
I decided to start creating content of my own. My first piece of content I'll drop this Wednesday. And it's pertaining to the mythological aspects and the archetypes behind Bitcoin's origin, right? Satoshi Nakamoto, his disappearance, etc. Lynn, I think you'll really enjoy it because uh, a core piece of it is actually about, uh, stems from Avatar, The Last Airbender. So I just want to uh, share that out there. Yeah, go ahead and uh, tag me in a, in a post somewhere so I can see it. Absolutely, will do. Uh, that's all I want to share. I'm really excited about this, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with all of you. Thanks. Awesome. Love it when Bitcoiners are coming up with cool stuff like that and just contributing. This is such a great community to be a part of. Uh, Lynn, you were mentioning a little while ago that you had an article that you were working on. Um, if you want to um, tweet it and tag me, I'll grab it and put it up in the nest so everybody can see it. Um, or if Humble, if you can just check her feed, if you see that, can you put that in the nest, please? Okay, so um, if there's anybody else in the audience that has any questions uh, for the panelist speakers, it's been a really cool spaces this morning. Um, we started out at 7 a.m. Pacific and we just kind of kept rolling all morning because we've had some really great um, developments here. Stefan started out with us and then Lynn jumped in and it's just, uh, it's really blown up. So just wanna thank everybody for your, for your time hanging out and sharing your wisdom and what you know. Speaking of custody and the ease of custody for Bitcoin compared to gold and even um, how we have the ethos of not your keys, not your coins, did you guys talk about the fact or was there any updates on, on the Binance news that I, I saw they're uh, restricting withdrawals of, of everything from their, from their platform? Is that correct right now? Yeah, I saw that too. I don't, I'm not on Binance, but then I also saw a follow-up, unconfirmed, just what I saw that they, that they brought it back already. But point to be made. On a happier note, I, uh, I just wanted to chime in. And if you see in the nest, uh, in one hour, a, a short film, a documentary written and narrated by Tomer Strolight and produced, paid for by Mimesis Capital, which is a Bitcoin-only venture fund, uh, is premiering and uh, should be pretty awesome. So you can just grab the YouTube link right out of the link in the out of the tweet in the nest there and check that out in an hour obviously it'll be available for uh, viewing whenever you want but it'll be kind of fun to watch the comments and watch with other bitcoiners around the world as it premieres at 11 pacific to eastern today as a side note to that uh that movie that's coming out bitcoin is genera generational wealth uh short film by tomer strolight and matt hornick um, there's going to be a Bitcoin Magazine Spaces at 4.15 p.m. Pacific time to, to talk about it. So keep an eye out for that as well if you're interested in seeing more. We've got a couple people requesting to come up. We're going to go through and add some of those. Corey, speaking of Bitcoin-only um, investment or VC firms, you mentioned Mimesis there. You, did you see that uh, Marty Bent and, and Parker and Odell are, are coming out with 1031, which is another uh, obviously Bitcoin-only focused VC firm? What are your guys' thoughts on on the future of 
of venture capital in terms of, of focusing on Bitcoin only. And then and then the, the dollars to Bitcoin kind of not necessarily arbitrage, but but, you know, opportunity costs of those VCs focusing on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of 1031. Um, they invested in Swan about a year ago before they got the, uh, the influencer driven partner strategy. Uh, which obviously we follow with uh, Bitcoin Ventures having Stefan and Jan involved with us, lowly plebs, Lewis and me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's great. I, I love I love the deal flow that podcast hosts get because they are able to have these focused conversations with founders over and over again. And both I think Marty and Stefan have kind of the the best rotation of founders in the space coming through. So I, I love this move. I think it makes a ton of sense. We need more of these uh, Bitcoin focused or Bitcoin only funds like. Folger Ventures and Mimesis, uh, Stillmark, the Bitcoin Venture Fund. And then, you know, obviously Bitcoin Ventures is a syndicate um, and not a committed capital fund. Uh, so we need more friends that actually uh, do lots of due diligence and tell us where to cut our checks of, of thousands of lowly clubs around the world that, uh, that combine to write checks of like 250 to 400 grand or something like that. And they can lead rounds with, you know, 500 grand or a million or more. Um, so, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, you know, the, the risk return profile of startup investments is just very different than Bitcoin. You know, I think Bitcoin is is over time will become about like preserving your purchasing power. And we're lucky that we're in early where the whole world hasn't woken up to that. And that's why we expect there to be lots of gains in the asset. But, you know, startups are growing off of very, very small numbers. And so almost by definition, just like a, like a tiny shit coin can pump a lot in percentage terms, but still be worthless, like tiny little <laughs> valuations for startups that are like $8 million or $40 million or whatever, it's a lot easier for them to 100x than it is for Bitcoin, even though most of them will fail. So it's kind of like I spend basically all of my excess capital on Bitcoin, but I also place some bets, some lottery ticket stuff just in case, you know, Swan's equity has you know, dramatically outperformed Bitcoin since inception because we started off such a small base. And, you know, that's true of some other startups. Obviously, lots of other startups just go out of business and you lose your money. So you just got to kind of think about it. It's also a lot of fun. <laughs> so I will say that, you know, in the, and with the syndicates, not having to be an LP and commit, you know, say 25,000 or 50,000 minimum to be part of a fund. And then if you're in a syndicate, you actually are looking deal by deal and the check size could be as little as a thousand bucks. I think that's just kind of like, you know, kind of like playing poker with your homeboys. It's zero sum maybe, but it's actually a lot of fun and you get to support the ecosystem and you get to be like super fans of these companies. And a lot of times you have like extra access to product launches or information, things like that. So, you know, not for everybody, but for some people, it's a, it's a good deal. Yeah, just to add to that, I think Corey made a lot of great points. I think part of it is just your... Investing in some of the companies that building that are building in the vision that you have. So if you think that, for example, you want this idea of uh, you know people to be able to live on Bitcoin, and so one of our um, companies that we put money into as a as a syndicate was BitRefill, and so that's an example where you you might want a certain product to exist. And so you're helping fund the existence of that. And so that people can buy vouchers. And I, I use that all the time when I'm out there demonstrating for people. Um, if I'm trying to show them, like I'm trying to teach them, Oh, Hey, look, you can, you can buy an Amazon voucher here. Here it is. Or I, I, I'm, I'm, um, I was showing some of my cousins in Sri Lanka. I was saying, Hey, 
um, what's your phone number? Let me just type it in right here, boom. And then straight away, they can see it in a second. They just get hit with new phone credit. And it's like just a really magical moment for them. And so that's just an example of the kinds of things that um, you can participate in. Um, but of course, you should also be a hodler as well. It's not something that you do instead of hodling. It's something you do as well as hodling. Okay. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Alex. I uh, want to welcome up and say good morning to Bitcoin Holding Company. Did you have a question for the panel or did you have a thought? Yes, uh, good morning, everyone. I have a quick question uh, regarding uh, the big drawdowns that we see. Like uh, a lot of times, you know, we see the 70, 80% dropdowns. Um, my question is uh, when these things happen, does do we think that the world is falling apart and everyone is selling? Because we always hear, you know, 80, 70 to 80% of the Bitcoins don't move. Uh, everybody's a strong hodler. Uh, what happens during those times? Like, what are the main uh, drives, uh, dri uh, drivers of that dropdown? And um, do we, is it only like that 10, 20% of the volume that moves around? And just a quick question. Yeah, sure. I think, I think you're right. Like, I guess offering a little bit of insight from past cycles, I think what happens is there's a massive exuberance. And, and I think naturally, we as humans are momentum traders. We look at, oh, look, it's going up. Okay, I want to buy it now. I want to buy some now. And then that can go the other way as well. When it's going down, it's like, oh, no, it's going down. I need to sell out now. And so that's, again, that's the mindset that people often have. And so I think the way these things happen is that, you know, Bitcoin's Adoption was not just going to happen in like a steady, let's all have an orderly walk to the lifeboats. It's no, it's going to be people are just going to be running for this thing. And we, we never know when uh, that final kind of gradually, that suddenly moment happens. But in terms of what happens with these cycles along the way, is I think you just get a whole bunch of people who sort of run in. And yes, that price is set at the margin. So even though, was it 50, 60% of those coins haven't moved for a long, long time, for years and years and years. If you look at, say, HODL waves, which was the research by Drew Bansal from Unchained, um, and there have been many other on-chain analytic, uh, analytics uh, metrics that are now made available. So people try to look at these to get a sense of, okay, where are we at? Are we top-ish? I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think it just comes back to that idea of momentum. And then what happens is when the moment that everyone thinks, oh, it's just going to keep going up and up. And I'll, you know, what happens is a lot of people end up going leverage. They go leverage long, and then you end up with a, with a lot of weakness in that system and a lot of possibility then for it to come down a long way. So the way I'm seeing it is like we're trying to grow that group of people who are uh, using a Bitcoin savings plan, right? They're automating their purchase every week or every month or whatever, every day. And eventually we're going to hit this crazy momentum up and we're going to fall to the level that the uh, Bitcoin savings plan, all the people out there who are regularly stacking. That's how I, I see it playing. Um, but I'd love to hear what uh, you guys think on the panel. I think that's a great description. And I would just add also, so we, we see this to some extent in other markets. Um, we're basically, to, to emphasize uh, Stefan's point, that the, the marginal pricing sets the whole as far as we measure these things. And so even if there's a very illiquid uh, market, 
um, those transactions are, you know, setting the price that we see across major exchanges. So during those those very euphoric peaks and those very, you know, depressing dips, um, you know, those are often illiquid. Um, you often see exchanges go down, right? So that can prevent uh, the market from quickly, you know, determining, uh, uh, you know, what is the actual market price. Um, and then also, unlike many traditional markets, there's no circuit breakers, right? So there's more of these kind of outlier events that are possible. Um, and then, of course, you know, for most of Bitcoin's history, it was a smaller market capitalization, uh, smaller asset class, especially when you factor out like lost coins or hodled coins that are just nowhere near uh, being sold. Um, and so the actual kind of um, overall kind of liquid coins available was not a very large market capitalization. So combined with all those other elements, you know, there's a lot of room for those those crazy price movements. You'd expect that as the asset gets bigger, it should get less volatile. Um, and you have more a broader range of market participants, and you should have, uh, you know, just different kind of buying and selling profiles out there. Um, and so that that's kind of how I'm approaching it. And then you can look at just different euphoria indicators, um, you know, some of the on-chain stuff or just some of the other uh, ways of measuring it. And so far in this cycle, Bitcoin's not gotten anywhere near as euphoric as those, uh, which gives it some degree of protection against major drawdowns. Because it's it's you know it's it wouldn't be coming down from such like a a leveraged euphoric peak to begin with. Thank you. So like for example, during the uh, COVID crash, uh, is it a good assumption to say the seventy or eighty percent of the people were still hodling, even though the price went down significantly? I can tell uh, you. Uh, uh, go on, Jeff. Sorry, I didn't want to uh, jump out of turn here. Hey, everybody, by the way. Um, yeah, I think the stats I heard during the COVID 2020 crash, I think 83% of people held on and only 17% uh, sold. So I just agree with what's been uh, said that it, it tend, the price moves on the margin. Another way that I look at this, by the way, is that um, price in free markets, and, and I think Bitcoin is the freest of markets, it basically moves in sort of a cyclical dance. And that's not just between, um, you know, buyers and sellers. That's kind of the, the level one way of thinking. But then it's also between long term savers and investors versus short term traders and speculators. And so uh, you can see pretty easily with on chain analytics that the old guard, that the long term uh, hodlers, they tend to sell into strength, price strength, and then they buy into price weakness. And traders and speculators do the exact opposite. They tend to buy into price strength and they sell into weakness. So they so they kind of do it at the wrong time. Uh, and the OGs tend to do it at the right time. And this market is just this constant cyclical dance. So when you see the price move parabolically, um, there's a good chance that the OG is actually selling uh, the some, some Bitcoin that they've been holding for years and years. And they're selling it to the people who are new, the newbies, and they're kind of FOMOing into the, into the trade. Uh, and then vice versa, once after a parabolic move, when the price uh, starts to crash, um, the OG will start to slowly, they'll pick up their accumulation uh, and the traders are selling all of their um, all of their Bitcoin to them. So so it's, it's just kind of this cyclical dance that you see between uh, different types of traders and investors. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. All right, Yasin, I see your hand up. We're going to come to you in just a second. Uh, Joe Black, welcome up. Good morning. Do you have something you want to ask or add? Hello. 
thanks for having me. I'm Joe Black. I'm a time traveler. I come back to tell you to hold your Bitcoin. I'm here to share my thoughts. I think that is a mistake to compare Bitcoin to gold because Bitcoin is a technology, is an invention. It was baked by Satoshi Nakamoto and uh, it's internet money, it's not digital gold. I mean, I'm okay with scarcity, but it's just a new land, a free land where we can connect with everybody in the world and Lynn Alden, I love you. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks, Joe Black from the future. That was one of the most insightful things anybody said this morning. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate that people like you exist. Good morning, Sam Callahan. Do you uh, have something you want to add or ask? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me up here. Uh, great conversation. Um, I actually have a question for Lynn. Um, last week, it seems like we had a lot of disorder in the global bond market and a lot of adjustments happening. Uh, for instance, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia saw some crazy movements with their two-year yields. Um, it was the worst sell-off since 1996. Uh, the Bank of Canada also on Wednesday said they're pulling forward their expected timeline for interest rate rises. Uh, that triggered a heavy sell-off. And as well as in the U.S., we're seeing uh, the yield curve flatten and the 20-year treasuries rose above the 30-year bonds several times. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on these bond movements? So overall, we're seeing both markets and central banks raise their expectations for how sticky or persistent inflation is going to be, um, because they see that this, you know, the wage pressures are continuing, the supply chain issues are, are continuing, uh, and so what they thought was going to be like, you know, six months is turning into uh, a couple years. Uh, and there are some kind of unique case. So the 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 Australia is kind of a unique case because they were doing yield curve control. Um, and so on that day of that crazy spike, they basically chose not to defend their their level. Um, so that was kind of like a lot of pent up uh, suppression kind of coming out at once. Um, so that was the the percent change or the basis point change in that day was bigger than than we've seen from you know most of the other bonds around. Uh, but they've all been going up pretty dramatically because essentially that the market uh, is pricing in the idea that central banks. Um, are going to start raising rates. We've already seen this in, in so you kind of see it out of the, from the periphery, right? So emerging market central banks have a lot less flexibility to begin with um, if they want to sustain their currency. Uh, and so many of them have already been hiking for a while. So Brazil, Russia, for example, they've already been very hawkish, um, you know, from a central bank standpoint, and it's the developed markets that have been slow to move uh, and and so far, still like the, you know, the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of Japan are still among the least dovish. Whereas now we're starting to see some of the other developed markets, like Canada, uh, start to get more hawkish. So we are starting to see that more hawkish tilt, and the the front end of the yield curve, um, where that kind of that that middle front uh, is starting to you know price that in uh, pretty aggressively. Um, now it remains to be seen, um, you know, if some of these larger central banks. Will be able to raise the rates meaningfully. Um, you know, my overall view is that because there's so much debt in the system, they would not be able to raise the rates to quote unquote real positive real rate levels. So, for example, if official CPI is five percent and they want to have positive real rates, 
um, they'd have to raise up to like 6% or so, or 5.5%. Um, and that's a pretty remarkable move. Uh, whereas instead, um, that's what you see out of those some of those emerging markets. Uh, whereas when you look at what developed markets are doing, you know, right now they're talking about stopping quantitative easing, let alone raising rates. Uh, but then when some of them start raising rates, which some of them are talking about, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, basis point moves at a time, like 25 basis points, 50 basis points. Uh, so it's kind of a really interesting thing to watch is that they'll be tightening and yet they're still behind inflation. Yeah, just to add, I think it's also interesting that um, in the case of the Australian um, RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia, it's like they were unable to sell the bonds. Like, so the price just spiked up massively. So I just think it was just an interesting show that there's like this tug of war almost that like people in the market maybe weren't as keen to buy the bonds as what uh, the RBA thought. So I just think it's an interesting dynamic and just to see if that will happen um, more and more in other countries as well. So um, did we have uh, anyone else with a comment or Sam, did you have any anything else to add there? No, I just I tend to agree with what Lynn was saying, and uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's all bullshit. You know, I don't think they can raise rates with this amount of debt levels, and um, it's all kind of a charade, in my opinion. What their real intentions are: financial repression to allow the inflation to run over. So, you know, it's interesting to see these bond moves and how quickly they're developing, and it's just interesting to see how these central banks are kind of positioning themselves for these inflation numbers. And maybe they're thinking that they're not as transitory as they made them out to be, or maybe even believe that themselves. I'm not so sure, but um, thanks for those insights, Lynn. That helped. Yeah. Um, Yassine, you've have you got a question or something to add? Yes, I do. So this might be a bit of a silly question, but it's been on my mind for quite some time now. So if you're someone in their mid-20s, right, and you have a 401k, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this thing and it's, it gives you like a 25 to 30% return at the end of the year, whereas Bitcoin, we all have a hunch where this is going, right? So would you recommend liquidating, if you have like, if you don't have much debt, you have a stable career, would you recommend liquidating your 401k and dumping it into Bitcoin? Uh, that's probably, uh, I don't know if we can really give you, tell you that. I think it's, um, it is, you know, it is possible though for people to set up their own, like a, like their own IRA LLC, like a self-directed IRA and roll over in that way. So that way it, you're not taking a tax hit on the early withdrawal. So that's something people can do and they can, um, you know, that's something even at Swan Private, uh, one of our experts, Terence, can uh, certainly uh, discuss within within more detail. Uh, anyone else want to add something there? Lynn, any thoughts there? I would just add to keep in, into consideration the psychological element. Um, uh, so one is that people can't really give an individualized investment advice, uh, but just general thoughts would be that, you know, people can say identify an asset that is better performing than other assets and make kind of what, what seems to be a logical conclusion that I should just put all my assets into that asset because it's the best one. Uh, now, the, the the challenge of that approach is that, you know, when Bitcoin 
does go through its periods of volatility, someone who's got, you know, roughly 100% of their liquid assets in it, um, you know, I think they underestimate how emotional they could get if they see like a 60% drawdown uh, in something that is, you know, that they've essentially bet their entire net worth on. And so, you know, people have different approaches. I, I, I go with a more diversified approach in the sense that Bitcoin has become a large percentage of my net worth. Um, but I still retain a variety of other assets. And part of that is so that when Bitcoin goes down 60%, literally, I don't even think about it. Um, and so I, I generally recommend, uh, you know, caution uh, or conservatism when it comes to, you know, kind of making sure you understand your conviction in assets and your ability to withstand large amounts of volatility. I mean, obviously, younger investors um, can position themselves to handle far more volatility than older investors. Uh, so they have that going for them. And overall, it would just be, you know, think, make sure you understand your psychology and what you're getting into when you concentrate heavily on something is kind of all I'd add. Yeah, it's very common to overestimate your risk tolerance as well. So you might go into it thinking, yeah, I'm gung-ho, I'll hold through 70%, 80% drawdown. But then when it happens, it's another thing altogether. So just keep that in mind. So, yeah. Anyone else with um, a question or a comment or something to add? Okay, so I am going to ask one more question. I don't know if you can hear me. Yep, go on. Yep. Okay, so this is probably going to be the last one because my phone is, is about to die, I suspect. It's starting to act up and do those weird things that it does after a while with spaces. So uh, one question coming in through DMs. Uh, we have a gentleman asking to talk a little bit about self-custody for beginners. And he would be very thankful for some advice. He says he's got most of his savings in BTC. 85% of it is on a single hardware wallet. And he's starting to get anxious. What is your advice? Should I spread this amount to two or three other wallets? Stefan, what do you think? Yeah, so this is one of those things where you really have to... Yeah, I mean, look, you probably could just have... An, another wallet just as like a, in case you know just as like a, in case something happens to this i i don't think it's that bad an idea like maybe you just have another hardware wallet with a smaller amount on it just in a separate setup just to kind of give yourself that um that kind of diversification in that way um but of course as the numbers go up it you know you do have to start thinking a bit more in more detail about your security a good episode um for anyone listening if you're interested a, a primer on uh, Bitcoin security and backups is episode 290 of my podcast with NVK. So we talk through uh, progression steps. So at that next level, you could start thinking about, do I want to use a passphrase? Do I want to consider seed XOR? Or do I want to actually think about stepping up to multi-signature? And so if you have a large amount of coins and you know, you're ready to go down that journey of learning, I would, you know, you could spend some time learning about multi-signature and then only once you're comfortable, then slowly transition some of your funds over into the multi-signature. Um, but you could look at learning about Sparrow Wallet as an example. You could get some different hardware wallets. You could, you know, get a cold card, get a, you know, like get a foundation passport or get a seed signer, get a keystone and mess around with a setup. You could mess around doing a two of three setup with that and the backups for that and practice recovering. And then slowly but surely you get more comfortable with using multi-signature and how it works and kind of the 
the back and forth of it. Um, I would also look at learning how to run your own um, Bitcoin node underlying that. That would also be another step that you could take. Um, as an example, you might run a cold, cold card and run Sparrow Wallet and then uh, have that point to your own Electrum server. So these are some examples that you can take and take it up to another level. Um, so th there's a few tips uh, if anyone else on the panel has stuff to add. I just second what uh, Stefan says. I, I think it's wise to spread out your risk a little bit, even if you're just 100% all in on Bitcoin and, and you want to uh, protect yourself. I think it's wise to spread your Satoshis around uh, to different locations. You know, things can happen, things that we don't even foresee. One example, my, my, my personally, my house burned down in 2012 and uh, our neighborhood, the fire was so hot that it actually burned and melted fireproof safes. So for people who have like, you know, maybe a treasure, a ledger wall or a cold card sitting in a fireproof safe in their basement, stuff happens, man. You just never know what's going to happen. So I would just strongly recommend spreading yourself out. You know, uh, there's lots of different ways to do it that Stefan brought up, but but consider other options for sure. Just protect yourself. Yeah. And so, yeah, just to add to that as well, I mean, you want to obviously get like those metal seed backups. So if you're 24 words, you can get those metal products that will back up your you know, act as a backup for your seed words. But then you also have to think about, okay, that's is that now a single point of failure? And so to think about how to get around that problem. So generally, I think the answer longer term for most people ends up being multi-signature. Um, but multi-signature, it's one of those things where you want to use, uh, if you're not sure for yourself, then you might need to use a provider. But then there's trade-offs with that too, right? The privacy aspects of it. Um, but it's worthwhile learning. So um you know once you take that time you can you can figure things out um and you know try with a small amount learn with that before you actually do any serious um like amounts of money on there anyone else okay so we're going to start to wrap this thing up um if any of the speakers have any th last comments they want to make or uh, if not we're going to we're going to close it up I actually wanted to get Lynn's take on um, the guys were talking about the bonds and the Fed. And um, I'm just curious, um, how far do you think they can push this? I mean, there's talk about, you know, there's talk about them, um, you know, now possibly, you know, laying off on the purchases of the bonds um, and then possibly raising rates next year. There's a lot of talk about that. Do you really think they're going to move forward with that? And if they do, I posted something earlier, a couple of hours ago, I saw a video, I summarized the video um, from uh, this guy, Joe, and it was really interesting. He's saying that the next crash after the Fed tightening, um, they're going to have to do some, they're going to have to do some real overreaching because their old, tr their old tricks um, or tools uh, will likely not work. We're at 0% interest rates effectively. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's the ability, there's no ability to lower interest rates anymore. That's not going to work. We're going to have to go to 0% interest rate. He thinks that the next thing will be yield curve control followed by treasury and a fed merger and then nationalizing the banking system. And it gets a little dramatic here. Wealth cap instead of a wealth tax, also permanent UBI and then price controls because of the supply chain issues will get so out of whack. Uh, at the next the next turn that they'll have to try to blame, um, you know, the businesses for the prices increasing instead of taking the responsibility onto themselves. I'm just curious, um, 
what do you think, Lynn? Like, where do you think this is going to shake out, you know, over the next uh, 24 months, you know, the next couple of years with the Fed? So that's something I'm monitoring closely. And for people that haven't read it, I have a newsletter. Um, it, it came out in May 2021. It was called Fiscal Driven Inflation. Um, I, I talk about this this type of concept. Um, and then I have like a uh, an older piece from last year. Uh, we talked about the long-term death cycle. And so the, the short version is that the 2020s do look a lot like the 1940s, uh, specifically in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. So what the Treasury is doing, what the Fed's doing. Um, and so basically that time obviously was around World War II. And because there was so much debt uh, to GDP among developed countries, um, central banks were basically stuck. And so you know, the Fed, for example, had a nine-year period from 1942 to 1951 where they held rates practically at zero and then even did uh, yield curve control. So they capped the long-duration bonds as well. So even though inflation averaged around 6% per year for that decade, and it actually reached as high as 20% year over year at the, at the worst point, it was kind of this very volatile type of inflation because they also had wage and price controls. Um, so you had this very inflationary decade that was comparable to the 70s, um, and yet they just held rates super low. Um, and because they really didn't have a choice when debt as a percentage of GDP was over well over 100%. Um, and so, the, you know, there were papers published in 2019 um, that were influential. I mean, they were like BlackRock and they were like former Fed officials. And they basically were outlining the same playbook that we've gone through over the past two years, which is, you know, they said next next uh, cycle, you know, there's not much interest rate space to cut. And so they're going to have to resort to basically helicopter money, essentially large fiscal expenditures um, in order to, you know, avoid their, you know, their nominal debt spiral issue. Uh, and that's what we've seen play out. And they also talked about how that could be inflationary and that they'd have almost no choice but to kind of suppress yields anyway. Um, and so we had during the crisis in 2020, the Federal Reserve was talking about yield curve control. Uh, Australia actually implemented uh, a mild form of yield curve control, uh, mainly, mainly on the shorter end of their curve. Um, and so this was a theme that's begun playing out. And so I think it's going to be an ongoing theme where essentially, you know, cash deposits and treasuries are going to yield below the prevailing inflation rate uh, for much of the, the next several years. Um, there might be brief attempts where they try to tighten and then they slow down the economy and then they kind of re-loosen again. Um, and I do think, for example, that the Fed is going to reduce its asset purchases going forward. Uh, they do have some space for that when you look at the liquidity profile, but it's going to be very, very hard to raise rates by a meaningful amount. They might do symbolic rate increases, right? So they can go up 25 basis points, they can go up 50 basis points, uh, maybe they can go up 100 basis points, uh, but it's not as though they can just jack rates up to 6% uh, to positive real rate territory to try to call inflation. And because also the inflation is driven by the combination of physical constraints and, you know, the the fiscal stimulus and then the, the wage increases, it's not really driven by bank lending, which makes the, the rate hike approach a little bit less effective. So overall, they are in a tight spot. And I don't know how far they're going to go. I mean, that's partially based on human decisions that are hard to predict. Um, but I think that basically people should be familiar with the 1940s playbook, which is essentially that the Fed and the Treasury became almost unified, where the, the Federal Reserve's job was to monetize Treasury debt at a low rate. Um, and they did have price and wage controls at some point, and they did have the banking system buy large amounts of Treasuries. 
that were yielding below the inflation rate. So those are all historical precedents to be aware of. Yeah, I can respond in response to uh, the thing that I put out this morning. Some people called me that are friends, you know, Bitcoiner friends, and they were like, there's no way that some of these things could happen. And I said, you should watch the video the guy posted on YouTube at the top of the first post because they have done these things in the past, to your point, right? Um, though, although, although the Treasury and the Fed merger was interesting, he's saying, you know, to accomplish his first step in his, which is the yield curve control, uh, they may have to merge the Fed, uh, the Treasury and the Fed or at least amend the Federal Reserve Act, um, because this is how they will monetize the debt without relying on the markets to borrow. There'll be no more debt ceilings at that point. You know, we constantly have this debt ceiling uh, discussion, this debate, right, in, in, in politics. They'll, they'll try to eliminate that moving forward um, so that they can uh, merge between monetary and fiscal policy and not have to go back, I guess, to Congress for approval, and, and they'll just have control. And then as a result of that, <laughs> This is crazy. Um, they'll, they'll mandate because of the yields curve control and their ability to do whatever they want now. They'll be able to mandate now, I, I guess, uh, you know, a nationalizing of the banking system because they'll need these. They'll need the interest rates to remain at zero, and banks earn money as a profit on interest rates, and and they won't be able to do that. Um, so they'll need to subsidize the banks essentially. Um, it's like a continual bailout almost. I don't know how that will play out. Nationalizing the banking system. I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that. I don't know if that's just like some kind of continual like. Um, bailouts of some sort or subsidizing them in some way not really sure and the wealth cap didn't make any sense to me he says it's an extension of wealth taxes and it's really mostly driven by uh, optics in politics where politicians are responding to the public because the rich are getting richer because the asset prices are driving up so much because of their policies no one's going to take any accountability for that uh, instead they'll pass the buck and say oh, no we're going to go after the wealthy uh, because their assets are growing up i guess because they're smart enough to buy assets and not sit in cash at that point right um, but it'd be really, really bad optics if they did nothing. And obviously, we know how that usually plays out, that there's usually some kind of a loophole that the wealthy will figure out, right? Um, anyway, yeah, I just, I just, and by the way, Lynn, um, I just realized uh, recently we went to the same uh, university. You went to Rowan University. I saw that you were in there in the business school there. You used to be an advisor to the business school. Oh, yeah, nice connection. Uh, yeah. And, and just to touch on that final point, essentially, when you talk about Fed and Treasury mergers and nationalization, these things exist along a spectrum to some extent. And so, for example, in 2020, we saw that the, the Treasury and the Fed opened a special purpose vehicle together uh, that allowed them to buy corporate bonds. Um, and so the Fed alone can't buy them because they, they they're just, it's not in their rule book. Um, but basically, the Treasury could could basically set aside money to cover any default losses that the Fed faces. And allow them to buy corporate bonds in an off it's off the Fed's balance sheet fashion, but it's you know it's more or less essentially the same thing. And so it's kind of a legal loophole. And so that was an example of them moving closer uh, along the spectrum uh, in a similar way that we saw in the 1940s. Uh, and so there's there's various shades of Fed and Treasury merging together. Obviously, the extreme end would be to you know change the Federal Reserve Act and have you know the Fed just directly buy Treasury debt direct deficit monetization, that's more of like a nuclear option because, I mean, you have to get through Congress for that, right? So we see right now already that that there's division in Congress about multiple topics. And especially if you look out in 2022, we don't know, polls can change a lot in a year. Right now, polls show they might even have a more divided uh, uh, Senate um, and Congress. 
And so you ha- basically there's a there's a political reality for things that have to go you know, through the legislative process. What, yeah, one point though Whereas, is that I think he's saying that these things will play out if there's a absolute crash happening. And at that point, I think they have to come together like we did in 2009. And that's when it's sort of like 2000, 2000 uh, when did they do the Patriot Act? I, I don't remember exactly what year that was, but you know, in face of uh, a crisis, right? I, I just can't imagine any politicians coming together for anything anymore. But that being said, in the face of crisis where things may absolutely crash, where we go into a Great Depression, we are facing a potential Great Depression. I think that's when you start seeing people break the rules and do things that we never thought they would do. And I think that's what he, what he might be alluding to. I agree. And I mean, well, and that's essentially what already happened to some extent. We saw the first signs of that in 2020, where you saw an unusual large amount of bipartisan agreement on multi trillion dollar aid packages. Um, and you saw the Treasury and the Fed take unprecedented uh, steps in unison uh, based on on you know the lockdowns and and the uh, you know the 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 issues that played out in 2020. So yes, if you had an even worse downturn, um, you probably would you know the 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 betting chips would be on them doing essentially the same thing, if not even more so. So yeah, basically, I, I agree with you directionally in the sense that there is a there is a historical precedent for this. Uh, we we have policymakers in various degrees talking about this. I mean, they have the playbook out there, at least for the more mild versions of this. Um, and we've we've seen the early signs of it in 2020. So yeah, my overall base case is you know more central bank and treasury you know working together in the 2020s um, yields below the inflation rate. We see, for example, in the ECB, like in Europe, eurozone, the ECB is like the almost the sole buyer of many of those countries. Uh, sovereign bond issuance. Um, and so it's hard to look at that as anything other than debt monetization, even though they're, of course, not, you know, they're, they're still like that legal structure in place, uh, but it's already essentially happening. So, yeah, basically, that's the kind of playbook I think people should be aware of in the 2020s. Yeah. And the last point, I don't want to monopolize. I apologize, guys. Uh, last point that I want to make on this um, the point that you guys were talking about earlier about over uh, concentration of an asset that you have full conviction in is a little dangerous in the face of what we're talking about. Because in this world and in this scenario, if these things play out the way that Lynn and I are talking about potentially, all assets are going to get decimated in the short term, including Bitcoin. And if your entire net worth is in that, um, you may capitulate. You may think you have all the conviction in the world. Just be careful. Be careful. Because it could be the ugliest thing we've ever seen in our lifetimes. It will be exactly like the Great Depression happened before, and everything will get decimated. So you just have to be careful in that world. Okay. On that cheery note, we're going to wrap up. Brecky has one thing he's going to announce, and then I'm going to f- finish it off. Go ahead, Brecky. Thanks, Alex. Just want to thank you again for your uh, your amazing Bitcoin breakfast. They're always a great way to wake up. Um, last thing, just want to redirect everybody again to the tweet in the in the nest up there uh this film is going live in a little less than 30 minutes it's absolutely incredible um tomer and lewis lou everyone involved did an amazing job and i think you'll all really love it um and one small ask if you wouldn't mind we'd really appreciate a retweet on that um trying to spread the word as far and wide as we can and then again at 4 15 p.m uh, pacific time bitcoin magazine is going to host a follow-up conversation on twitter spaces and i'd love to see you all there as well so thank you again Outstanding. Okay. So uh, thank you everybody for participating today. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank Stefan, thank Lynn, thank Jay, Dr. Jeff, everybody for dropping all your wisdom. Thanks to Sats Radio for recording. That's going to end up as a podcast. Thanks to Humble, my co-host. If you're going to buy Bitcoin, buy through Swan. We love you guys. Everybody get out there and crush it. Thanks for hosting, Alex.